Hello and welcome back to Blood and Ashes. This is episode 19. I am your host Mo and I'm joined as always by my dear dear friends Vili, Sabona and Jody. Konnichiwa. <laughs> I knew you were going to go Japanese I thought for sure you were going to steal my fucking greeting Nah, I went a little bit closer to home this time around Okay, so today we are going to do chapters 6 through 11 So I want to do quickly check in with you both I think I know the answer to this question But have either of you read ahead of chapter 11? Nope, nope I'm Excellent. sticking to the schedule this has uh, been an exciting read for me because I, the only thing that I could vaguely remember is that there was a wolf man and I'd forgot all about that. So it was like all new. <laughs> the one thing you could vaguely remember, you had forgotten about completely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I actually really, for the first, well, not the first time, but I mean, again, for the first time in a while, really had to hold back from reading ahead, but not because I was like, you know, bombarded with action and intrigue i felt like not an awful lot happened in these chapters and i wanted to keep reading so that no. something would happen yes there was nothing that excited me uh, tremendously interesting moments but not like wow moments exactly i mean we say that but there's like you know one power used as a weapon almost you know and mm. there's, there's there is stuff but i just i felt like oh here we go first episode i think where it's like hmm okay it's not all going to be parent chopping off half men's heads and uh, land doing a dance of death every uh, every chapter um, mm. which is it's it's necessary because lest i re remind you book 10 book 11 <laughs> don't don't remind me about book 10 things get real dreary all right well uh, we'll, we'll just have to practice for those days because it's coming soon in three we will. years we will <laughs> and we will squeeze the fun out of whatever crosses our desks oh yes totally I mean, there wasn't any apple carts, so we've got a positive from that side. <laughs> but there was some scrubbing of parts, which fucking <laughs> like really. I highlighted that, knowing that you were going to bring it up. <laughs> um, speaking of things that are challenging, uh, should we jump into the callback zone? Ah, here we go. Our favorite part of the show, where we correct ourselves the whole time. <laughs> You guys love it. <laughs> Fine, just go. Just do it. I'll be honest, of, of all the prep for each episode, the callbacks is the hardest part for me because everything we've left, like every dangling, well, not everyone, but the most dangliest of threads, I have to go back and then actually find the text or do some research or something. It takes by far the longest out of all the prep work. But you are the most pedantic of all of us, so... It's, it's true. You, you kind of carry that burden by yourself. I'm a little obsessive compulsive. I can't ask a question in one episode and then leave it unanswered. Then I have to go and find find the answers. So I try with relatively decent success rate. No, you do. Good, good on you. <laughs> Let's jump straight in. We said, or I said, that I really like to think that the statues cut into the western slopes of the Mountains of Mist would be uh, remnants of Manetherin. Mm -hmm. And Jody, you quite rightly pointed out that the city of Manetherin was oriented towards the east of the Mountains of Mist, and that's why Eamon's Field, that became Eamon's Field, is down that way. Um, and then, so I did a bit of digging on, online, and I found that the, um, according to the geographical description of Manetherin's borders, it fully encompassed the mountains stretching out to the west into what we know as the Elmuth Plain now, all the way down from the mountains so the 
the territory within which those statues fall are Manetherin. And we also know from reading these chapters that you can actually pass through those mountains. They are not completely impassable because the team, you know, they all went into the mountains from the Almuth Plain. And when they exit here, they exit into Gildan and stuff on the eastern side. So there are ways of getting through there. In fact, Uno is sent one way to Jehana and the other guys come out to the town of, I don't know, whatever it is where they find um, Old Wolf Boy. So... I feel comfortable in assuming that those large statues could be something left over from the Netherin. So I'm going to cling to that <laughs> to that little thread of hope, just because I love Netherin. And then we we spoke a bit about uh, Moraine and her warding, like was she warding their dreams? You know, um, what were the wards that she had set when Perrin was, you know, basically relying on the wolves to sort of ward his dreams? And I went back and I read that part where Min was sort of questioning her about what what she was actually doing. And what Moraine was doing was she had set wards that hid them instead of setting wards that would keep Shadowspawn out. Because they talk about gray men and stuff and Min saying, oh, you should set wards to keep those things out of here, keep us safe. And Moraine says, look, firstly, that would trap us here. Um, And secondly, making wards of those kinds are outside of my um, realm of capability. So, you know, this is the this is what's going to keep us mobile. I can continue to set these wards, which are lower effort, and they keep us hidden, mm. uh, which means that we are a bit more mobile. Is that the same ward that she used in the Blight in Book 1? Mm. It must be. When they it camped there next to Melchior. Yeah, and everyone disappears. Yeah. <laughs> the, she used that ward already in them when they uh, stayed in the, uh, after they passed uh, Whitebridge, just past the ferry. Not Whitebridge, sorry. Taran Ferry. Taran Ferry. And then the shrubby oh, right. bushy, she also put a ward up there oh, in the, to hide them. She did. Mm. Like in the log jam. In the log jam. <laughs> the beaver lodge. The beaver lodge, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so she is definitely relying on wards to hide them, but she's not warding their dreams and she's not warding them to keep any shadow spawn out. Here's a pedantic one uh, for you, Joe. Uh, We said in our last episode that they burned the bodies of the wolves, but they didn't. They actually buried the bodies of the wolves, which would have been a really weird thing for the Shinarans and the other humans around there to to do. Because Mm -hmm. when they said, you know, when Uno makes the comment about at least they'll have the fur coats and stuff from Mm -hmm. the wolves and Perrin goes, no, you know, and then you will bury them with the rest of the the human dead. They would have been like, "Uh, okay, we'll do that, I guess, because you're, Perrin? We also spoke about when does Perrin throw away his axe and when does he make his hammer and when does he take up the hammer? So those are three different events, obviously. Perrin throwing away his axe and then, you know, the next time he goes out taking a blacksmith's hammer and then later, uh, way later in the series, I think it's only in The Knife of Dreams, does he make his own hammer uh, when Neil is standing near him and he uh, he notices that the the metal is sort of talking to him and Neil starts channeling while Perrin is uh, is forging the weapon. And by the end of Perrin's forging, Neil has been joined by, I think, six wise ones and Grady. And, like they're oh. all channeling in a circle into that thing while Perrin is, uh, is forging it. And Perrin says afterwards he felt like a part of him was being imbued in the hammer. And only to Perrin's touch, the hammer feels really, really warm. So he has a power wrought hammer. Oh, uh, shit. Towards the end of the story. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> <laughs> Do not remember that at all. 
Me neither. But um, the the part the part we were really sort of like fixated on is like when does he get rid of the axe? Because mm. Billy, you you thought it wasn't yeah, book I thought one that already. Was already in book one, yes. I said book nine. And that's it, Jody. You said book nine, but it was in book ten. In ah, chapter really? 20, 27 in book 10, yeah. It's after Perrin uses the axe to cut the hands and feet off that Shido Ailman. Oh, yeah. Because he's looking for Fail, and the Shido have her, and he threatens to cut off his hands and feet and to leave him in the next village so that he can be a, a, like a laughing stock and an oddity and a beggar, and the children can throw food at him and stuff. And... After he's Jesus. done that, he goes into the woods and like you said, he throws the axe away and it sits in a tree, like it thunks into the trunk and he leaves it there. Shit. <laughs> Shit is happening in book 10. I'm going to reevaluate book 10. Heavy days. I'm really hoping that when we get to the quote unquote slog this time around, we can really see it for what it is. Uh, yeah. A masterpiece. I'm, I'm pretty sure it will be. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, uh, we're in such different places. Totally. We also spoke, how's this? This is, I mean, Okay. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> we spoke about the dark friend social. And Jody, you were thinking like, the woman clad head to toe in black. Could that mm. have been Surat? Um, sort of like hiding all of her telltale Sean Chan uh, accoutrement. And um, I went back and I read the dark friend social again. We just read this, I mean, I know a little couple of weeks ago now, or months ago, but mm. during this reread where I'm trying to pay as much attention as possible there were two women covered head to toe in black yeah. <laughs> and both of them wore serpent rings. Bors is looking at one of them and before she notices him staring, he looks away and catches the eye of another woman dressed head to toe in black with a serpent ring looking at him. Uh, wow, missed that. So there were, there were two of them. Neither of them was Suroth. <laughs> no, exactly. But I mean, just goes goes to show again, like how savvy the Aes Sedai are, right? Like they are not playing around with disguises. Some people at the Darkfin Social are not disguised at all. Yeah. And uh, yeah, are two Aes Sedai and just covered head to noobs. Yeah. Billy, you said about the Darkfin Social that you assumed that all the Forsaken were there. No, not all the Forsaken. Did I say that? You did. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We don't know what we've yeah. said previously. Captain Pedantry is on your case. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was only Ishmael. Um, I think that's his was little, Lampy his not little there. scene. No. There was a beautiful woman with dark hair, but she had dark coppery skin, and Bors comes to the conclusion that she's Domani. Mm. So... You know, if you if you had to gloss over that and not sort of pay attention to the hue of her skin, it would sound like Lanfear, a tall, beautiful woman with dark hair. Well, what we were uh, discussing, I think, was uh, that um, we the some of the Forsaken don't know what the boys look like, assuming yes. that yes, there's the confusion. So yeah, that would make sense then, because then they weren't at the social, so they didn't get the 3D view. The, exactly. What's that little uh, hologram of uh, Leia? Exactly. And I think the reason we were talking about that is because we had that wolf dream where parents saw um, Belal, uh, Ravine, and Ishmael arguing about stuff in the world of dreams mm. and Lanfear sort of like looking out, you know, spying on them. And we actually had a, a callback submission from someone that wrote in before, Aisha John, who says that, and I mean, this is just what I'm taking from their message. I have not researched this or anything, but it, it seems to fit our ideas anyway, that Belal in, in Tyr, who has now set him up, set himself up as a high lord, 
is basically projecting his desire for Kalandor to all and sundry to come and try to claim it, hoping to lure out of hiding the Dragon Reborn to take it so that he can take it from the Dragon Reborn. Because only the Dragon Reborn can actually take the sword and mm. Belal wants it. So he wants to lure the Dragon Reborn out. And I mean, that could even be one of the reasons why he and Ravin and Ishmael were arguing. Uh, Ishmael might have been telling them, forget trying to manipulate this guy because Belal is a, a famous manipulator, far better at it than Ishmael or Robin or any of the other Forsaken. So he is that guy that is trying to pull the puppet strings in the background. And Ishmael might have rocked up there and said, stop trying to manipulate the Dragon Reborn. I've tried. It's time it's to kill him. Happen. And that's <laughs> Yeah. And that's why, you know, dark friends are killing boys on the Elmuth plane that look like Rand and that sort of thing. Because, you know, from Ishmael's point of view, he now just wants him dead. Rand has killed him twice. And yeah. uh, he, he's probably taking it quite personally. <laughs> Definitely taking it personally. Oh, yes. I did a bit of reading about, again, from Parents Wolf Dream in our last episode, why is Ishmael and Lanfear, why are they constantly offering the boys glasses of wine in the world of dreams like what does that actually do have you done any reading about this joe or you just saying yeah because you're also interested in what the hell are they doing i know the second you know yeah absolutely of course here we go strap in poor decisions are always made when you're drunk (laughs) it's a known fact (laughs) none of us have made any good decisions get wasted then you'll listen to me (laughs) come on Billy, I was I was waiting for like a, a psycho theory, but that makes that actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, we might be reading too much into it. They could literally just be trying to get the boys drunk so they make worse decisions. Yeah, exactly. That's it. After seven cups, Rand is like, "You're right. I did serve you in a past life. I totally remember that. <laughs> this is a great idea. We should also get tattoos." Um, <laughs> the um, the internet seems inconclusive about it as well. Um, a lot of people have speculated about what it could be. Like, people are sort of like discounting theories that can't be poison because at the time, you know, they've already decided, you know, at least in book one, uh, Ishmael is not trying to kill Rand. He's trying to manipulate him. Mm. Some people have drawn parallels to some Greek mythology. Apparently, if you went to the world or the underworld or the world of the dead and you consumed food from that world, you couldn't leave. So, you know, I think it's Hades tricks Persephone or someone into eating pomegranate seeds and because of that she can't leave for a certain amount of time so it could be a way of like trapping someone in the world of dreams somehow yeah which you know is it's nice to think about but there's nothing else in the story then there's no motivational motive that could actually you know back up that theory but we actually speculated about is that maybe a way to track the boys you know like at the time we first read about it you know Moraine's Tavel on coin was still fresh in our minds like mm. is this a way that they can track them and then um, on some old forums I read about a couple of people talking about how uh, you know Rand doesn't have the drink and Perrin also refuses the drink but at the time in the eye of the world when Ishmael was breaking the the backs of the rats in the inn and you know like those, those dreams he wasn't 100% sure about who the dragon reborn was so he would have been offering that drink to everyone and maybe because you never find out whether Matt took the drink or not. Maybe Matt, under the influence of the dagger and being sort of like the loose cannon that he is, maybe he did take the drink. Um, and that could be why the dark friends are right on top of them that whole way as they travel, which is also just a fun thought. Mm. Because they also say that the dagger itself draws dark friends from mm, miles around. Yeah. So anyway, the long... Long story More short, questions. inconclusive, <laughs> inconclusive. Well, at least we know that it's not something we've missed and that nobody knows. All right. Just fun fodder for discussion. 
I'm uh, believing that uh, you just get them intoxicated with these young boys and they're going to make silly decisions. Like, <laughs> how do we get these guys just to like just give us all the information? <laughs> oh, let's throw some beers at them. That will work. <laughs> we also wondered, where does Rand hear the prophecy that he quotes to um, Moraine? Mm. And she says, where did you hear that? About the blood on the rocks of Shail Ghul. And we sort of dismissed, you know, couldn't mean Tom because Tom recites some um, some prophecy to him in, in Kyrian, but not that part. But it turns out he did exactly that excerpt. Yeah. It was Tom that told him those words in I Kyrian. I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for driving that point home last time. <laughs> we... we um, we also thought that Rand was quoting the prophecy directly, but he wasn't. He was paraphrasing because the prophecy goes, uh, twice dawns the day when his blood is shed, once for mourning, once for birth. Uh, red on black, the dragon's blood stains the rock of Shailgul. In the pit of doom shall his blood free men from the shadow. Uh, but what Rand says to Moraine is, the blood of the dragon reborn on the rocks of Shailgul will free mankind from the shadow. So he's paraphrasing that thing that Tom had told him, which, you know, is, it's cool that he retained that. Like whenever he mm. hears little bits of the prophecy, he actually, he actually retains it. Speaking of the prophecy, we also had a bit of chat about the pronunciation mm. of uh, its official name. And it is the Kareathon cycle, like you said, Joe. I think you actually hey, said that last time. I pronounced Confirmed. something correctly. Whoa. Ding, 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 ding. I'm going to retire drink. now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Go out on a high. <laughs> <laughs> Another mystery we we <laughs> we started. I mean, this is free for anyone to read, but <laughs> we we turned it into a mystery for ourselves. Is what happened to loyal staff when he was oh, fighting yeah. Shadowspawn uh, in the Mountains of Mist? Was he using the one that he had sung in the Portalstone Worlds? But you were quite right, Joe. He had discarded it in that flight from the Grom mm. when they're running with Celine to get to the portal stone that she said she used to get there. They At one point, they go up quite a steep hill and the horses are struggling and Loyal tosses the staff aside because he says it would do no good against the Grom anyway. And Loyal is basically dragging the horse up the hill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which is pretty right. cool. So yeah, so he wasn't fighting um, the Shadowspawn with the staff that he sung in the portal stone worlds. But I'm sure that in the months that they were up in the mountains preparing mm. to defend that space, he probably preemptively, I'm going to assume, sung himself another staff or used a tool and just whittled it. <laughs> or you know, like He procured a staff in some way. He found a stick in the woods. He pulled a branch off a tree and started swatting <laughs> at, at Trollocs. We also read about Perrin naming his horse Stepper because of his mm. quick feet. And I made an offhanded comment that, you know, Stepper's around all the way until the end of the series. <laughs> and then I had to go fact check myself because <laughs> no, no. I am Captain Pedantry. <laughs> <laughs> he dies in the next chapter. <laughs> Eaten by Trollocs. Well, um, in, like, I mean, this is not important, so I didn't do an awful lot of research, but I looked into it. And according to the, um, the wiki for Wheel of Time, Mm. Stepper's current status, which is, you know, everyone's status at the end of A Memory of Light, is mm. alive. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know if you remember this name, but Perrin at one point gets a different horse called Steyr. Ah, yes. And um, it is mentioned that he is <laughs> not as quick-footed as Stepper. <laughs> so the <laughs> names are quite literal, <laughs> both of them. But um, I think Steyr... I don't know. I'm not going to speculate as to the, the whereabouts of stay at the memory of life because this is like a, a gift that keeps on giving. I can 
re- mm-hmm. this, there are pages online. Should I? I'll, I'll say this: there are pages online dedicated to the horses of the Wheel of Time, which is just—it's a step too far for me. Yeah. Well. Then this is the last one. I promise. I see you guys falling asleep on that side as already. <laughs> I got a nice long voice note from a friend of the show, Rowan. Uh, mm-hmm. who quite wisely decided to send a voice note to me uh, instead of trying to type all of this out. But um, he was a couple episodes behind and he was he wanted to chime in about the chapter towards the end of The Great Hunt called The First Claiming, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, Lanfear appears to Min where she's cradling mm-hmm. Rand. And we were sort of um, kind of flippant about Lanfear's arrival at that point. We we're like, what is the point of this? And... We were at the end of a very, very long episode at that point, so we didn't necessarily have all of our faculties available to us. But um, Rowan made a very good point in that the title of that chapter is deliberately ambiguous because Mm. Min very much does claim Rand to Egwene's face. Like she basically says, you cast him aside, he's mine now, and I'm claiming him in not so many words. Um, But Lanfear's whole shtick is that she was the first to claim Theron before even Ilyana, because they were romantically involved before Theron married Ilyana. So she's got this chip on her shoulder about, I was the first one to claim him. He is mine. You can think what you want. You look after him until I come and fetch him. And all of that, actually, and the ambiguity of the title and the fact that they've both you know, laid claim to him reinforces the duality of Rand's nature, the fact that it is Theron and Rand Althor at the same time. Min is claiming Rand. Lanfear is claiming Theron. So um, the ambiguity there is intentional or mm. could be. Um, and that all fits really nicely for me. That, that actually seems to make quite a lot of sense. Thanks, Rowan. Yeah, nice one, Rowan. He also sent me a much shorter voice note about the uh, he had only listened to the first part of the prologue from, from the Dragon Reborn, but he wanted to comment on the fact that Pedro Nile's chair is, uh, almost, is described as almost throne-like. Mm. So while he is a practical man, he quite likely has designs on... Uh, some, you know, position of legend or power um, from early on, since before the events of the books necessarily took place. Um, so there's a little bit of ambition uh, on display there. Whether he inherits that chair from the previous Lord Captain Commander, who knows? If it's anything like the Amelin study, you know, like he can furnish it how he wants, probably including the chair. Um, so I'm going to assume that he he has showed his hand a little bit there in... Uh, making it look like he wanted some power. Yeah. Okay. That brings us to the end of the pullbacks. You guys can rejoin the podcast now. Hello, we're back. (laughs) (laughs) Two hours later. (laughs) Okay, so why don't we head straight into chapter six then. Jody, why don't you take us through The Hunt Begins? All right, let me stretch. We were done with The Great Hunt. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> we're never done with the great hunt i think it's like mm-hmm. later on in like books nine i mean when he meets fail she's a hunter for the horn <laughs> she's yes. people still hunting it the whole time <laughs> oh you found it you fools no one told us so chapter six the hunt begins or continues rand is gone he's fucked off land wakes up uh perrin with the news that rand disappeared during the night in his little uh chilly shack that he's sleeping in um, where they then head to Moraine's hut to formulate a plan and to figure out where the fuck this guy went and what we're going to do about it. Um, Pet to Perrin, the camp still smells of death and blood because remember it's just last night that they had that massive 
attack and he chopped, he mm. decapitated a, a fade and all of that. So even though for the rest of us, it's it's been a long time since we spoke about this. It's only last night. So on his way to Moraine, he is stopped by Masima, who's gone full crazy now. Uh, and he wants to know why the Lord Dragon has abandoned them. And he's grabbing Perrin by the coat. He stops him in the middle of the stream. And this, to me, is the biggest callback. <laughs> the biggest takeaway from this chapter now is that Perrin has a soggy boot. I was so pissed off. Like, can't, can't you stop him outside the stream? Anyway, I'm not going to go down that yeah. road. But anyway, he has a soggy boot now. So uh, he wants to know why, and, and Perrin has to pretend to, to care and tells him, no, 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 <laughs> the Lord Dragon had a plan. You know, he wouldn't just abandon us. This is all according to his plan. And Mimicina's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I see that now. And off he goes. Mm-hmm. So now Perrin has a squishy left boot. And <laughs> off he goes to go to, to, to Moraine in her hut. Inside the hut, there's Moraine, there's Loyal, and Min are waiting there. Perrin has some stern words for Moraine. Uh, much to, to Lyle's despair. Uh, he's cringing <laughs> yes. at every second word. I mean, you thought that Rand was being cheeky with the Aes Sedai, but Perrin is just as, as flippant with her and demanding answers from her, not giving her any respect. She's calmly taking it, but Lyle is not happy about it at all. And no one seems to know how Rand slipped away unnoticed. I mean, he is, he's in a camp with Lan, for one. And sentries. And sentries and Moraine and everybody's there. Mm. And he's just gone. No one heard or saw. A camp full of Shinarian sh- lances that yes. were chosen to be the best. And land. That's my, my point. Even if none of those other people were there, <laughs> just land. That's still yep. an, a, an amazing feat. Uh, but we do find out later on how it went. Mm. So um, Rand left a note. He didn't uh, sign it or anything, but obviously it's his. Basically, he doesn't want anyone else to die for him. So he's gone off to hunt Ishmael because he says he is chasing me in my dreams. And there's some more mumbo jumbo about dreams. This whole section, I think, from all these the six chapters we're going to cover is a lot about dreams. The world mm. of dreams and all of that stuff and mm. the danger inherent in them, etc., etc. Perrin still questions her about whether she truly, her as in Moraine, about whether she truly believes that Rand is the dragon reborn. Or if she's still playing him, he's still not 100%. And even Moraine, I think she's certain, but she's not certain that the world is going to accept Rand as the Dragon Reborn, regardless of what happens. Fair enough. Yeah. So Moraine also reveals at this point that the Forsaken are free. And this is a point that, um, also pretty pedantic maybe, that I never considered before. But there's a difference between the Dark One's prison and the seals on the Dark One's prison. And that the Dark One is trapped in the prison, but the Forsaken were trapped in the ceiling around the prison. So mm. they're not in there. So they were in the seals. So as soon as the seals weakened, that's why they're out there so quickly. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm. I never considered that before. I haven't in the past, and I still don't today, understand <laughs> how you trap evil in a disc. It's magic, Vili. The bore? Like, is it, a, is it a borehole down into earth where they chucked them, like stomped them down with a stick and then plugged it with six seals? No, it's in the world of dreams. The boar is through to another dimension, oh, from our right. reality into another reality. So they, they put them in an alternate universe. Well, that's yeah. the distinction Jody is making. They did not put the Forsaken into an alternate universe. The Dark One was always in the other dimension. Lanfear finds it and senses a source of power in this other dimension and then creates a rift between our dimension and this other dimension. And that's when the influence of the Dark One comes out through that rift. 
and that is the source of the true power. That is the other that is the other source of power that she sensed there is the true power, because the one power is the power of our will. And the discs are just like uh they're describe like as focus points. Foki. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. They're just focus points for the power that was used to actually create the seal over that rift. And where it becomes confusing to me as well is, I mean, obviously a bore, it, it creates a, an image, a mental image of a deep hole. And then also the name, the pit of doom, mm. you know, like, okay, mm. what's the difference between the pit of doom and the bore? Is that just where the bore is? It happens to be in a pit that, you know, sounds like it would be a similar shape. It's, it's all very, very murky. Yeah, the, the the theory is that the, she drilled the bore in the world of dreams as well. It's not in our reality even. Oh, yeah, okay. It's all through the world of dreams. That's the, the world that connects all these different realities and... Uh, dimensions? Dimensions! Jeez, my brain is fried. So, yeah, that's that's the nexus there is uh, the world of dreams that connects all of this. Anyway, mm. so she's uh, worried about Rand. I mean, Moraine is playing her own game. She's trying to save the world. She does actually care about the boys. And she's worried about these dreams because, I mean, there was mention of dreams. Uh, parent mentions it. And then she looks at him right away. comes right up in his face. She's all up in his shit. Tell me about these <laughs> dreams. Like, what have you been dreaming about? Um, and it turns out through this chapter, we find out that everybody has been dreaming of, of swords, has been dreaming of Kalandor. And that mm-hmm. Rand is just so powerful, a channeler, that he's projecting his dreams on everyone else. So we spoke mm-hmm. earlier in the last the last podcast about why is Perrin dreaming about Kalandor? Like if he's not the Dragon Reborn and all that kind yes. of stuff. This is why. Everybody, it's not just him. Everybody in the mm-hmm. camp the has soldiers, been dreaming about the lances this. And... Yeah. yeah. Uno. Uno. He's flaming dreaming about these bloody swords. <laughs> I like there's another scene here where, where he's being interrogated by, by Moraine and trying to hold back his swearing. And he physically... <laughs> <He's> sweating. <laughs> sweating. <laughs> like after With he's effort. speaking, he has to breathe deeply. And <laughs> like, he has to instructions right after that. And then he goes down and catches up for lost time with swearing. <laughs> yes. Just... Anyway, so uh, yeah, well, that's where we find out that Perrin has dreamt of, uh, of, of Kalandor, or Kalandor, how you wish. Uh, him and others, <laughs> of course, and it's only one of the many prophecies. So this is what I was talking about earlier. That um, she she believes that he's the dragon reborn, and the, the the talk then in the in the cabin is that well, if he takes Kalandor, then the world has to accept him. I mean, that's like a pretty big sign. And she's like, hmm. ah, maybe you know, there's a lot of shit that has to go down. There's a lot of prophecies and a lot of things the dragon has to do, and even scholars that have studied it their entire lives don't know what all of those things mean. Uh, and even if he takes it, the, the world may not accept him as the dragon reborn. One of the other prophecies she mentions is like, what, is it, what do these things mean? Like, slay his people with the sword of peace. We all know now, slay the people of the dragon mm-hmm. is him, that they, he reveals their, their tree origins to the Aiel. And, and bind the nine moons to serve him is another thing that she doesn't know what the hell that means. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we know that now with the, the Sean Chan. Mm-hmm. But still, Perrin continues to press Moraine for more info and telling her, like, stop holding stuff back and tell me the truth for once. Uh, and just then Lan returns to tell Moraine because she sent him out to go and check what everybody else's dreams were. And he gets back there and he's like, all right, yeah. So like half the people in the camp have been dreaming about swords and 
somebody touching the sword and Masima dreamt that's that Rand actually grabbed the sword and she's like, yeah, he would like out of all the people. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. this, this, uh, cause she's like the way they describe the dreams as well. She's, she's been obviously inside the stone of tear or knows it intimately through drawings or I don't know, mm-hmm. but she's like, um, well, this is the stone of tear hundred percent confirmed. She's hundred percent sure now that Rand is heading for tear. So she's all stoked and rubbing her hands together. Like, all right, plan time. Now we know what mm. we got to do and where we got to go. Settle the horses. And off she goes. All right. She's getting everybody ready. Uno has also found out while he was away that uh, how Rand slipped away. Now, in his secret little special place that he went to through the cracks, um, when he made that earthquake, he created another crack that he was able to escape through. And that's how no mm. one saw him go. So he was in his special place and escaped out through there. Moraine is just happy. He hasn't dis- rediscovered traveling or from flight yeah. or some crazy power that, that invisibility, invisibility. Yeah. No, but he, later on we find out he has actually. But anyway, Uno <laughs> must take the Shinarans. Uh, she's got a plan now. All right, Uno, because he's the only one that's fit enough to travel. Like you said from the battle last time, yeah. untouched. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's going to take the Shinarans to to Gildan. So we were talking about the gap. You were talking about the gap through the mountains there. So yeah, mm. he's going to go through that side. And the, the orders are for him to take them and wait there. Mm. Where are they going? Are they going to Tyr as well, just going through that direction? Are they going to go meet them in Tyr? Who? Uno and uh, Uno his and the Lancers. Yeah. I don't, I don't recall. Why does she send them there specifically and, and tells them to wait when they get there? Anyway. No idea. That's where they go. Maybe just to get them out the way for a little bit so that they can go and do their thing. Well, they need to recuperate, right? Like Uno's the only one that's really fit to do anything. The rest all are right. all... <laughs> Hurting, cool. bruised. Mm. All right, so go to Gildan and and get better. There we go. Yes, gold. Go right. bring That's some pints, specifically <laughs> that one town. Yeah, uh, hang around there. I'll give you a letter, and yeah, yeah and Johanna, you'll get more money. Like, yes, some money. Mm. Go and relax, and then you'll get some more money when you get there. All right. So they're going to rec- recover. That's that's the prevailing theory. We'll definitely find out because um, you know when Masimo becomes the prophet and he leads like armies of people who call themselves the people of the dragon mm. they i think come from gildan all right setting myself up for a huge correction <laughs> <laughs> but In next week's like callbacks he, he he sort of comes out of nowhere like he you know like that stuff sort of bubbling away in the background and when you check back in with Masima, he's gone f- full crazy like i mean he's at 90 percent here and when you see him mm. again he's 100 percent. he's got his Isn't head he shaved he's become like a preaching the the prophecy oh, it's yeah. called the prophet yeah he becomes like orphan prophet of the dragon yeah yeah and he leads that whole army of people that call themselves the, the people of the dragon yes now that's all coming back to me perrin has to deal with him and he smells mm. the crazy on masima mm. anyway so well that's what's happening to them so that's that's you know that was a mistake by her part i suppose leaving them unattended that's what happens mm-hmm. can't leave those people <laughs> yeah. unattended so she yeah. sends Min as well is going to Tarvalon to go and tell Swan the shit that's happening and has happened and keep her in, up to date. Uh, she mm-hmm. can't send the men because the men will never get an audience. She can't send Uno. Like he'll mm-hmm. never even get in the tower, let alone get to see. So everyone's got their part to play. And Uno mentions that uh, we are the people of the dragon. At this point, they're already calling themselves that. And Perrin mm-hmm. laughs and asks Moraine in a cocky tone, you know, whether she has given them this new name. And Lan tells him to watch his tongue, like really angrily. And I thought to mm. myself, 
holy shit, imagine if Lan had been there five minutes ago when Perrin was going off with Moraine. <laughs> Dude, this is yeah. nothing. You should have heard what he was saying just a few minutes ago. You forget that Lan Lan is is really hard. Like not just in a physical sense. He is there is no gray area for him. You stand up to Moraine in any way and he will tell you to sit the fuck down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is cool. But anyway, yeah, he 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 escaped damage that time, Perrin. So mm-hmm. yeah, so who's left then is uh, Perrin, Loyal, Moraine, and Lan. They're going to go find Rand. They're going to hit the road soon because he's got a couple of hours ahead of them, and they got to they got to catch him. She asks politely whether Loyal and Perrin would like to join them. She doesn't give them orders, but that's because she already knows what they're going to say. Of course, Loyal's going to say yes. And Perrin is just like, he thinks about it a while, but of course, he's going. What else is he going to do? Outside, Min teases Lan about uh, a message for Nynaeve. Like, hey, you want to let me know or something? And he's like, Jesus, does everybody know? Like, <laughs> yes, everybody knows. Except oh, for the man. three of us for like 20 years. <laughs> Didn't know. We know now. <laughs> it's only after um, leaving Moraine's hut and, and Min mentioning like, yeah, you really stood up to there her in there Perrin realizes like oh fuck yeah I did like I was really harsh how am I still alive <laughs> the, the, it really dawns on him like the shit that he said and he's like oh fuck alright well no problem um, Min also now sees new images around Perrin at this point now that he's decided to go after Rand these new images appear around him and yep. one is an Aielman in a cage what was this about an Aielman in a cage again it's how he meets Gaul all right. Okay. Gaul. Shit. Yeah. Good old Gaul. Yeah. The other image is a Tuathan with a sword. Aram. Uh-huh. We know that uh-huh. one. Of course. And then the second, or well, the third one, is a falcon and a hawk perched on his shoulders, both female, falcon, Fayil, and the hawk, Berylane from Mayin. Surely. Surely, because yeah. their symbol is the hawk, as I recall correctly. I think they actually appear as those birds in some parents' dreams at some point as well. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that is, I mean, that little love triangle is played over books and books and books yes. <laughs> as, as long as Berylane's traveling with him. Yeah. And she is fine. So he is a little bit. Uh... RJ does like reminding us how smoking hot she is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and then Min also warns him about a beautiful woman. I mentioned this earlier in the last episode. It was because it was yes. I read ahead. Here it is. All yes. right. Yes. And she's just like, whatever. And then, of course, later on, we find out that he does see her and completely ignores this piece of advice. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, he's telling her, like, all right, you know, off you go. Uh, off to Tarvalon. And that's where you'll be safe. And she's like, safe in Tarvalon? You fool. And that's basically mm-hmm. where we leave them. Uh, there's a little bit there about uh, he gets confused, I think. Is this the point where he gets confused that she might be into him? <laughs> no, she he's uh, she's con- uh, con- uh, questioning whether he's. Oh no, he's questioning her, like whether she's into him. Like, yeah, you're right. Yes, and he's uh, she sets him. He's misreading straight. her completely. Yeah, he <laughs> yes. misreads her completely. She's like, no, 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 Rand, and he's like, but Rand and the Green, and she's like, no, yeah. uh, no, done. <laughs> Step aside, <laughs> bullhead. She's Min. Obviously, Min obviously knows. Green knows. The only person who doesn't know is Rand, like in this yes. in this scenario. I think he's got other things to worry about. Anyway, that's where we leave the chapter with them uh, all parting ways and heading on their own little solo missions. No apple carts included. 
No, it's None. too snowy. Got anything else to add to that one, Vol? Uh, no, that's pretty much uh, what I've got out of it. It is a lot of table setting in a way, I suppose. Mm, most of these chapters are... Colourful and f- flavorfully written chess piece moves. <laughs> I do love how Perrin stands up to Moiraine, mm-hmm. um, following in the grand tradition of Rand. Uh, like openly challenging her, and you'll we'll see as these chapters go on. That's actually a recurring theme, sort of like the the power dynamic between Perrin and Moraine, um, and how it readjusts again after this period of Perrin sort of like really digging in against her. It's uh, interesting that uh, they uh, will take Moraine on, but they'll always be wary of Lan. So it's kind of the limits. Well, it's not, I suppose it's kind it's of ironic because the one that's going to, who is able to inflict mm. the most harm on them is Moraine. And yes. they, they gun ho at her, but mm-hmm. they're worried about Lan. <laughs> and, yeah. And when Lan's not there, then they're like, okay, cool, let let loose. <laughs> Lan gets back, yeah. okay, let little loose. They, under, they understand Lan. They don't mm. understand Moraine. Mm. Perrin still thinks of Ishmael as Baalzmon. Mm. Like, um, no one up until now has made any kind of link between this appearance of Baalzmon in their dreams and Rand's fights above Falme and all that stuff. No one has straight up said that could be Ishmael or that is Ishmael. Well, they only found out about the Forsaken being free in this chapter. Well, Agenor and Balthamel were both at the eye of the world. Hmm. Oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck, Moraine? <laughs> Up your game. But she lists a couple of, of, of Forsaken, and I think all of, most of, if not all of them, are actually She lists Ravine, Belal, mm. Lanfear, uh, Ishmael. Samael. She says, even Ishmael himself, the betrayer of hope, he could be out there. Yeah, you know, meanwhile, is. we've been interacting <laughs> with him on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. He's been controlling your moves since book one. Totally. Where'd you hear about the eye of the world? I wonder if Rand is starting to sort of suspect that the Baalzamon he's dealing with is not necessarily the the Dark Lord himself. You know, it's um, in the end of The Great Hunt where he says, hang on, this person doesn't know everything. Yes. And it is also reacting to the steel of my sword as if it could harm it, you know. So mm. he's still talking about it in his letter, but like he is still chasing me. So he's still referring to Baalzamon as Baalzamon, but... Um, I think he's starting to suspect that maybe this this isn't him, but everyone else is still like, mm. okay, this is the this is the dark one himself in my dreams. Um, so Baalzaman's disguises are working. Yeah, hmm. it's doing something right. Yeah, just can't get those boys to drink wine. <laughs> he can't have a piss up undercover in a cop. Um, I found it quite interesting that Moraine was so tender towards Min when Min breaks down in this chapter. Like she's sort of like, she's upset because Rand is, is missing. Mm. Um, and you know, upset about like, obviously what his fate is going to be. And, um, while Moraine is talking, she, she puts her hand on Min's head and she's Mm. sort of soothing her. And Mm. even as she's talking to Perrin and sort of like confronting all these things, there's specific mention that she doesn't stop comforting Mm. Min. So she really does have some kind of affection for Min and she wouldn't send her away lightly. That stood out for me. And I think it's because uh, she Min has been telling her uh, for a long time already about mm. her viewings. 
Mm. And perhaps she knows that Min had seen her as one of Rand's wives. Yes. Yeah, well, she knows that she's in love with Rand. She understands. She understands. I, I know I, why you're upset. Yeah. It's not because of the Dragon Reborn. It's because this man that you have now come to realize And you that's love. why Min threw her little chirp at Lan. Because yes. I've been now, and someone knows something about me. So therefore, yes. I'm just going to go piss Lan off. It's like, oh, you want a little message for Nanive there, hey, Lan boy? It's funny, Egwene does the same thing, or should I say Egwene, does the same thing to uh, Nynaeve in a later chapter. Yes. Like she prods her mm. about Lan. <laughs> a lot of, lot of jibes going around in this, in hey, this stretch. You've got to keep it busy when you're traveling on horseback and sleeping <laughs> in the bushes. <laughs> exactly. Parent says something that we're all thinking all the time. He says to Moraine, why don't you just tell us in advance instead of like being cryptic after the fact? Like you've mm. got all these plans and things, but you keep all of them secret just for once. Can you just give us a heads up? Instead of just telling us to just accept these crazy things that are happening and saying that you knew it was coming or you expected something like this. Um, and I, sh- I share that sentiment. Like, just be more upfront with them. Like, they can handle more. But I guess she doesn't know that for sure. So. I get her retort to him in that. Saying that mm. if I were to tell you everything I know around this, we'd sit here for a year. And then yeah. Yeah. still I might not be right. So yes. these puzzle pieces in her head she's got bits of information and prophecies and targets and goals and all of these things are slowly like clicking in together but it's clicking in as it's going down but in the meantime she is asking them to trust her and she's acting and behaving in a way that is not exactly illicit well she's a nice guy like come on like she doesn't walk around carrying trust (laughs) on her own no certainly not quite the opposite yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah. uh, I do get, and I mean, you want to think that she would want to protect them better. Mm. You, you, It's been through, I mean, she gives to the point of sacrificing herself. Um, she, she does. Yeah, she does the best for the boys. So, I yeah. mean, if she had the ability to pre-warn them, so, okay, by the way, I expect that you're going to be visited in your dreams, which is this other realm that we're not quite sure of, but we know of, mm. but we don't know how it works. But I'm super, super certain that you're going to be visited by a, a rat-breaking, booze-peddling monster. <laughs> so don't look at with the With an rats. for lace. Don't treat the booze. Just steer clear of the man with the red mouth and the red eyes. Ignore the rat, deny the booze, and get out. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm with Vili there. She also doesn't really know what she's doing, right? I mean, she's, she's, she's trying to ride this bucking bronco of a Taveran Bucking Broncos, like three of yes. them. Yeah. At least Matt is man down at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. It's a bit easier to control that way. Um, but you can understand why the boys then on the other side are also afraid of the fact that the tower might want to control them to try and you know steer things towards their um, their ultimate goals. So it's like everybody is just like, if you imagine like a bucket of magnets all repelling each other and moving and shifting around each other, like constantly trying to fit into what they think is right and while not you know ruining everyone else's plans. It's a, it's a balancing act for sure. Mm. Uh, Moraine mentions how unreliable pigeons are, just to address one of my early <laughs> early criticisms of the story. Like, why are these people not communicating? And she says to him, and you need to go because I can't spend the time trying to find someone with a pigeon that can go to mm. the White Tower. And I also have no guarantee that any pigeon that gets to the White Tower will actually get to the Amelin seat. Um, so she's basically admitting that their communication is Poor. very bad. And then the last thing I will say 
is that I am so glad that Perrin agrees to go find Rand because what he says is Rand is his friend and yeah. he will still go after mm. him. So I'm hoping that it's not him telling himself that and making that the reason that he's going, but that he is actually genuinely going because he does care for his friend. Well, I think that the, the bond between him and Rand is only going to get strengthened by the same strife that Perrin is going through at the moment and in the next couple of chapters where he is so getting sort of being confronted by Gnome and mm. all of that, that's going to, we'll get to shoot mm -hmm. soon enough. He sees eye to eye with the fact that they both probably going to go insane. Yes. There's a lot of parallels between what could happen to Perrin and what could happen to Rand. So yeah, he probably is sympathetic. And I mean, Matt's already broken man down in the litter being dragged by a horse dead insane. Mm -hmm. Tavirin's got to stand together. <laughs> <laughs> I think what is coloring my perception of the relationship between Rand and Perrin the whole time is that I know at some point in the future, or at least I think I know because, again, this is based on terrible memories, but um, there is a point where Rand and Perrin have a conversation and Rand has to manipulate Perrin into doing something, uh, which he does then go off and do. Like Rand sets him a Isn't quest of some kind. file. I don't think Rand is telling Perrin to go find Fael, but he might be telling Perrin, was it to broker the deal with Sean Chan or to, I don't know, I'm speculating here, but there is, a, there is a, almost like a betrayal of the trust between them because Rand is purposefully manipulating Perrin um, at some point later. Let's put another pin in that one and see <laughs> see what comes back. Just edit it out, Moritz. <laughs> no, Pretend it no. never happened. Too many never. pins. Never. No. So we should relabel the show as a pincast. A pincast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we've exhausted that one. So um, let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter seven. And it's called The Way Out of the Mountains. So Moraine's obviously sent Uno and the Shinarans uh, to Johanna and the, the remaining group which is now, oh, she sent Min to Tarvalon. So it's Lan and Moraine and Perrin and Loyal who are traveling together. And they are descending from the mountains and noticing that the weather is starting to get a bit warm. Perrin is aware of, you know, a lot of wolves around again in the area. Um, Lan spending all of his time scouting. So like he's hardly with him. So it's Loyal, Moraine and Perrin sort of riding together and following these signs that Lan is leaving behind for them. He's out scouting all day and then leaving like little bits of grass tied together or like, you know, a weed bent in one direction instead of another, little piles of stones, um, mm. all that sort of stuff. Apparently he has hundreds of different signs that Moraine knows how to interpret. So they never see him um, until they stop for the night. And they usually are stopping when it's starting to get dark. And Moraine is the one that is sitting a really, really hard pace and always wants to continue. And Land is the one saying, we are going to spend so much longer on this trip if we break Mandarb's leg because I'm scouting in the middle of the night. There's only so much I can do in the dark, right? So we have to stop at some point. So he's the one always stopping. And Moraine's just saying, you've got to go faster. You've got to go faster. To the point where she actually jokes about uh, if Land can't go faster, if he's getting too old, maybe she should send him to Morel right now. <laughs> he immediately arcs up about it. He's like, I will outlive, or you will outlive me by many, many years, Moraine Sedai. You know, like he, he's fiercely defending his position as uh, the one that will die to save her and not the other way around. 
Perrin also muses on how he wishes they weren't carrying the dragon banner with them because Moraine's actually got it with her and he's just like, he's he's not comfortable with it despite him being the the, the banner bearer in that battle at Falmay. And for the most part, it's a pretty boring journey. And then there's a weird scene that I, I, I'm finding hard to place. Maybe you guys can tell me what you think about this, but it's the fishing scene. I've got I've got some talk about that. <laughs> Vili has something to say about fishing. What a surprise! Weird. So they um, so they're lying on their bellies with their sleeves rolled up on the edge of the stream, right? And they're basically holding their hands near a ledge where they know some fish are sheltering underneath, and they're basically sneaking up on them and catching fish with their bare hands. This is something that people do in real life. Like that is yeah. not a made up fantasy thing. People are able to do that sort of thing. And then Moraine saunters over and she undoes her buttons on her sleeves and she rolls her sleeves up to do it as well, which is a a very non unmoraine like thing to do you know like mm. okay cool you want to try fishing as well and then she i can only assume plays dumb because she pretends like she doesn't know what to do and immediately grabs like a fish way bigger than any that perrin and loyal have have caught before and they're Hold like on oh, okay well a five pound <laughs> trout do you know how big a five pound trout is no how big is a five pound trout look if uh, that's a five pound mm. trout it's a, this does it's not a, translate to audio very well <laughs> he's holding his hands about two and a half feet apart it's a 50 50 to 60 centimeters of big trout under a little ledge that you're lying on i mean robert jordan wasn't a fisherman no well i don't know that for a fact actually <laughs> nor were perrin and loyal yep no. Moraine is the true fisherman fisherwoman yes. she learned it from swan all those years with Swan. Now, that sounds like a fisherman's story to me. So, anyways, so Perrin and Loyal are like, what? This is impossible. Oh, this you know, you've caught the biggest fish under this ledge. We're going to go upstream a little bit and go see if we can find something there. And then they, they try their hand at it a bit. I think they find like another couple small ones and they came back and Moraine's found. She's got two more, even bigger than the first. And I don't know what this is about. Is this Moraine sort of like trying to just um, remind Perrin like, of his place? Uh, because she also makes him then clean the fish, which parents sort of grumbles about. Like any true fisherman knows that you clean your own, clean and gut your own fish, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's what you do. And we know that, but Moraine is not going to do that. And while he and Loyal is sort of like grumbling about it, Loyal saying, you know, I'm sure she'll have us in the habit of listening to her well before we reach the next town. And then land pipes up suddenly like right behind them. That's a good habit to get into. You know, you yeah. should never be questioning the ice today. They're like, oh, <laughs> sorry, land. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't meant to hear that one. I, at the beginning, thought this was just a moment of levity, like on the road, and she's finally mm. letting her, her walls down and just like trying to, you know, have some fun in the mm. seriousness because there's no immediate danger. But what you say yeah. about her subtly reminding them and then land coming up afterwards, yeah, get mm-hmm. into this habit and, and Loyal's comments, like maybe this was a way for her to like, listen, don't underestimate me. Remember your place. Because Perrin was very like... He was bold in the previous chapter yes. in the way that he was talking to her. And I mean, kings and queens don't talk to Aes Sedai like that. And here's this yeah. blacksmith from a small town. Um, she did take it in a stride at the time, probably thinking, okay. Oh, just wait until we get to a river. <laughs> I'll show you guys. <laughs> okay, but up, up until now, Perrin has also been pretty civilized around her. He hasn't really has spoken. It until was really... Recently. Rand that has been having the nightly arguments with her. And I mean, they've been up in the mountains now for months. Let's call it two months, mm. three months or whatever. Entire winter that they've been up there. 
And yeah. even in that introduction chapters, uh, uh, parent out of parents' perspective, before the whole we come brother um, side, he mm. it's like he had this in his mind, like ah oh, yes, just another argument between Moiraine and Land. So maybe that's given him the confidence now to stand his ground. Like, it's okay, okay, cool. Maybe he's, he's not been struck by lightning for three months, and yeah. every single night they're having an argument about what needs yeah. to happen. It's emboldened him. And plus, running around barefoot on all fours with an axe, chopping off mm-hmm. Madral's heads, has also maybe played a little bit into that. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. that's the territory of land. His confidence. So one one Taisha Manetheran from land, and suddenly it's he's like, arguing fuck with it, out, of out of control. Out of control. But land did ran him in again. Watch your tongue, blacksmith. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. Anyway, so at the end of this little bizarre little exchange, um, Perrin basically resolved to not let Moiraine shape his destiny. And they continue to travel. And as they sort of reach Gildan, they start moving through farmland. Um, Perrin notices that he feels wolves in the area when they really shouldn't be that close to other humans. And he doesn't really elaborate on that. I don't know why the wolves would be coming closer to human settlements. Maybe they are Trollocs in the mountains eating all the game. I don't know. I think he was feeling, uh, because I put a pin in that as well, I mm-hmm. think he was feeling known. Well, he he does, uh, maybe, because mm. he doesn't engage with like ascending or anything like that, but he does say multiple wolves and they're all around. Yeah, I suppose he does say that. Maybe the wolves are there because of Gnome and him, like mm. maybe two of these two legs. Hey, that two of these in them. one spot, that's a tremendous uh, odd thing. But mm. then again, there was also two of them when he was with... Um, Elias. And there were wolves around. Maybe. Yes, they mm. were. Um, so a day after they've left the mountains, they reach the town Jarrah. Um, and that's how the chapter ends. Oh, right. <laughs> I was just settling back in for the rest of the chapter. No, it's finished. <laughs> no, it's done. It's done. That uh, chapter was very odd. Odd, I must say. it. There's a real tonal shift in the mm. fishing scene with Moraine, like the idea, like the image of Moraine in her fine dress lying on her stomach with her arms in the river, uh, catching huge fish with her bare hands as a Kyrian and noble, noble woman. would do. You know, like it's a lot of incongruency in that in that scene, but well, it gave me a chuckle. The simplest thing is the, the mm. best explanation is usually the simplest one. She was hungry mm. and tired of eating skinny-ass <laughs> rabbits that's been smashed with a big-ass rock against their head. Hey, rabbit is good. Well, they are, they are four, four people. I mean, and one of them eats for two. And Perrin eats probably for three as ravenous wolf Perrin <laughs> now. And one rabbit, two rabbits that they've got to eat cold in the morning and then back on horseback, like picking the little... That bits of rabbit bones. Okay. I've I've had rabbits. They're not that big. <laughs> they they're kind of <laughs> bony and small, really. Okay, so Vinny's theory is that that whole scene was just to show that Moraine was hungry. Yes, <laughs> cool. Like, just okay, just taking <laughs> nothing deeper. No, there's no no other meaning. The psychological one up. Plus, I got a full belly. All right. So where are we? Next chapter. Mm-hmm. All right, chapter eight. Jara, take us through that one, Vili. Yep, yep. All right. So uh, they coming out of the mountains, and roads has become easier, and they're getting into this town of Jara, sort of a, a Eamon's field looking town, but more out of stone, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, like empty, 
at, and quiet, smoke still, mm. fires burning, kind of like you would think something bad and Baron smells all the smells, but including that was like a very foul, odd smell that came and went just as quickly. And that mm. put a pin in that because that one stood out for me. <laughs> uh, then also like, you know, a lot of uh, uh, weaved arches, mm-hmm. which we now learn as wedding arches. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, 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 the green of the, the town village green is sort of trampled and well-worn. So there's obviously been, and I thought reading this, they had, oh, well, it's spring. So they've had their, what's it, winter night, Valtine festival. And, uh, no, but it's quiet because everyone turns out that they're so hung over from two days of weddings that had happened. And eventually they bump into Simeon. I'm going to go with that pronunciation of that word. I'm hopefully all right with that name. <laughs> and the man's got a frog looking appearance, but he's busy sweeping a, you know, the stoop of the uh, inn. The stoop? And, uh, the uh, veranda. Porch. Of the inn. <laughs> <laughs> not this anyway uh and uh he he parent with all his smells can smell the guy smells like sour wine he smells hungover he smells like mm-hmm. a pub but mm-hmm. he's kind of like oh dear like he he gets what he's dealing with there and he's like oh you're looking for rooms and he already at that stage had uh, picked um Moirain as a isodai but kept tight-lipped about it uh, then uh, he, he says, no, absolutely, shouts for some um, boys to come, stable hands to take the horses. They'll get them food. He introduces them to the innkeeper, who its name is... Uh, irrelevant? Irrelevant. <laughs> but... <laughs> Mr. Irrelevant <laughs> to you. Um, Harrod or something. Um, uh-huh. Not Hodor. <laughs> no. Uh, but he, it's sort of a cool, we'll show you to the rooms, takes them through, shows them their best room for Moraine. And mm-hmm. uh, Lan's like, I'll take the next one next door. And he's like, no, no, that's a servant's quarter. Like, it's not, I don't care. It'll do. Thanks. Take it. And uh, ironically, Perrin and Loyal gets the room that Rand stayed in, which I take is just the night before. I'm getting mm-hmm. a little bit of myself, but just to put it all into context. Um, and Perrin then, obviously, he wanted to pipe up and ask a lot of questions already before because in the introduction stage, Moiran asked, like, have you been having a lot of weddings here? And obviously picking up on all the arches. And he's like, yeah, man, it started with one young woman just out of the blue going up to the blacksmith and saying to him, like, yep, this is it. We're getting married. And he took off his apron and said, we're doing it right now. It's no, <laughs> like... This is happening now. And when that happened, it's kind of like everyone jumped on the bandwagon. So they've had nonstop weddings for the last two, three days. Rightly so, everyone is sleeping on this, which I think was probably a Sunday afternoon when they strolled into town because they were also bloody hungover from the parties of the weddings. Um, but yes, yeah, strange things has been happening in town. Uh, and parents trying to get information about Rand. They've, I mean, that's after all what they're doing. They're on the trail of Rand. And eventually he'll ask, he asked, uh, Simeon in the room, uh, like have a red-headed, gray-eyed, tall, handsome-looking guy come through here playing flute. He's like, yeah, man, that dude pulled through here. He played the flute. Everyone jammed, a little bit crazy, laughs, laughs and talks to himself in the corner. Um, and then last night he just woke up screaming and said they're after him and just left. 
East. Like mm-hmm. a little bit of an oddball. It's like, no, no, we're after him. We know we we're looking for him. We're mates. We're his friends. Yeah, we're his friends. And uh, also, it turned out the uh, children of the light. A bunch of them pulled into the town as these weddings were happening, and got very disjointed. Like one of them sort of just threw up the sack. He's done with us. He's he's going. Yeah, he's he's done with the children. And others just gave up and said they're going to back to Toman Head to the uh, to the plane. They're going to mm-hmm. go and look and do their first initial quest. And others started infighting, and others were abusing women. It's like it was just an odd sort of scene that was set there in this mm. town at that stage. But uh, yeah, he gets the confirmation that Rand was there. So he goes back, knocks on Moraine's door, doesn't wait for a yes or enter, just knocks and walks in. And Land and uh, Moraine were standing at the the fire. It wasn't mm-hmm. lit yet. And he could see he was interrupting, but it's like, yep, yep, Moraine was here. She's like, you didn't have to ask. I could see that when we walked in here. Like, he's such a strong Tavirin. Look at what happened here. Mm. People just got married. <laughs> they disbanded a group of white cloaks just from his mm-hmm. presence, his yeah. ability to influence the pattern. And uh, then, but in this exchange, uh, and why he went to Moraine was because uh, Simeon asked him then if Moraine, a woman like her, can help. Can she help his brother? His mm-hmm. brother's ill. And he's like, well, um, what do you mean, woman like her? He's like, hey, man, I might have a frog neck, but I'm, <laughs> I, know, I know what's happening. I've seen them before. Once you've seen one, you can spot them. And no one else in this town has ever seen anyone bar the innkeeper maybe at 20 miles or 20 leagues or whatever units measure of units they're using mm-hmm. <laughs> several spans <laughs> several at least but uh he it's like like he really wants someone to help his brother it's like it's gotten really bad so he says okay cool well, you stay here with Loel. Loel pins him down talking about trees and he goes to the conversation with uh, moraine and uh moraine then sort of like okay cool like yeah, I'll go. We'll do this. And he gets uh, Simeon and takes him down, or they walk down out the back through an alley, eventually into what appears to be a barn or a shed. And in there is a man locked in a cage, probably a stable with hay. And It's like a makeshift thing. They said it looked like a hastily sort of put together wooden cage. But a decent lock on it. Yes, Quite an intricate lock. Yeah, it's a master locksmith or mm. blacksmith's lock, anyway. And uh, he's like, no, well, he's uh, been getting drunk and telling people he can talk to wolves. And what set him on the path is obviously the resemblance between parents' eyes and uh, his brother's eyes, the yellow mm. eyes. And so this this guy, uh, Simeon, is quite an observant uh, person for a hungover innkeeper's hand. But yeah, he's he's just really into wanting to save his brother. So he, Moraine asks him to open the lock. It's like, well, he doesn't have the key. Only the innkeeper's got the key. She just grabs the lock in her hand and click, it's open. Does some secret unlocking weave there, <laughs> and he's like, whoa, like this is dangerous. And even Perrin is a bit wary because this this man wolf was already growling and showing teeth, and his teeth's mm. broken from that biting at animals and it 
turns out he's already killed a cow in the village, the little town. With his teeth. With his teeth. <laughs> so he's he's completely lost to this. Mm. But Moirain backs him into a corner or he backs himself into a corner. But either way, he's in a corner and she's right there with him, puts her his head in her hands. And a couple of moments later, kind of like, now there's, there's no... And the way she explained it was quite elegant that there's no roadmap in him to come from where he is. Yeah. Like it's all lost. He's, uh, he's, he's got no uh, um, restore point <laughs> left in no. him. Yeah. 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 So totally. it's, it's kind of like, like, sorry, but there's just nothing we can do. There's nothing that anyone can do. And mm. she buggers off and closes <laughs> the, the makeshift gate and puts the locks mm -hmm. in, but doesn't latch the lock. Mm. and Perrin sort of sees a lot of this and you know the inner dialogue with him was this is what's going to happen to me I'm going to be locked up in a cage of course and all of this really is this my fate mm, is this my fate type of thing and he's like um, well what do what do we do with him and he's like Perrin decides you know take the lock off open the gate stand aside clear the way for him and it's like well do you want him to die in a cage or do you want him to die free mm. like Rather let him be free, like his his fate is sealed. He's he's yeah. he's no more man. Do you want him to just wither away in here, or just let him go into the mountains? So yeah. they open the gate. He very agilely runs on all fours. Like still, a yeah. Parent takes note of like how good, how adept he is at running mm. on four legs, and he bolts and he's out of there. And then it's like, oh shit! Well, this is going to be a problem now for the innkeeper. Hiron or whatever his name is, is going to pull in here and see the locks open. It's like, no, no, just close it, lock it, let him figure it out. That will keep him busy for a while. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. stories come out like you hear, ooh, people seeing him turn into a real wolf with fur and all the rest. But it's obviously him just mm. chatting to his mates that live out in the bush um, mm -hmm. to hang around. So, yeah, that was uh, that is a, quite a, a a big part for Perrin at that stage. Um where they, uh, where he's confronted really with the reality of what he can become, I suppose. Yeah, yeah that's uh, so he sets him free, and I think that's where it ends. Then, how do the wolves take to to gnome? Like, because he seems batshit crazy, whereas the wolves don't come across as batshit crazy. Uh, so, no. like, he's not a man and he's not a wolf. So, how would they would they welcome him and say, "Okay, come on"? He's become a full wolf again, not a crazy wolf. He's also crazy. Moraine says, actually, Perrin reaches out to Gnome. Yes. And what Gnome sends back to him is a complete, like, disarray of totally unrela unrelated sendings. Oh, yeah, that's mm. right. So even in the wolf communication, Gnome comes across as completely all over the place. Yeah. So he, he isn't just a wolf. Yeah, it was, was like he'd bite him in the neck, bite him on the hamstring. Yeah. Just, like, random sendings. Okay, I kind of thought by myself, like, what would a wild wolf do if you lock him in a cage? Like, if you think of how the level of, at which Perrin can communicate with the likes of Hopper and the other wolves, like he is, I mean, it's translated into English, obviously, and I understand the sendings are all about feelings and all that sort of stuff, but he's having, like, what we would term a conversation with yeah. a wolf, mm. where it seemed it was impossible for him to do with no. All right. So he is batshit crazy. 
Yeah. So I'm just wondering if he's out there in the wild now that they've let him free, will he join the wolves or is he just going to be on his ace? Because the wolves weren't accepted. The wolves, I mean, we're speculating. Yeah. <laughs> we never <laughs> hear from him again. Yeah. So, I mean, the wolves might uh, accept him as a crazy wolf or they might like just leave him alone because he's one of them, but too crazy to actually join a, a, a pack. Yeah. Um, who I'm knows? What about Gnome? Give me a spoiler there. At the final battle, does the wolves pull in and fight Long Perrin at the final battle? They certainly do. And there's no, but <laughs> in and between like them the, all. That would be a great little tidbit <laughs> if uh, in the show, when they hit the final battle, Gnome comes charging out there on all fours, <laughs> eloquently like this creature of the night. No teeth left. No teeth left, but he's still gnawing at hamstrings with the wolves. <laughs> Gumming a forsaken. <laughs> oh, gross. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> Did um, you guys also like have to sort of like, um, I was taken aback by Lan's reaction to Perrin letting out that Simeon knows Moraine is Aes Sedai. Lan sort of like gets a dangerous look in his eye and Moraine looks at him and says no. no. Mm. And then he kill stands him. down. Lan was going to go kill him. Mm. I don't think Lan was going to kill him. No. Totally. I think Lan was just going to go find out what this guy knew. And I mean, man, Lan's not a cold-blooded murderer. He wouldn't have just gone to kill some random dude because he recognized an Aes Sedai. Look, he was, it wasn't going to be pleasant for Simeon. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Lan wasn't going over to play a, a game of cards. No, no. he was, he was going to make him disappear. Maybe tie mm. him up and put him in a cupboard or something. But uh, yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, fuck. Lan was going to go do something. Yeah, that's also something that I've thought about as well. When everybody's like, oh, don't anger the Aes Sedai and Rand standing up to Moraine and, and then Perrin's doing it uh, and then Lan's like, watch yourself. And blah. What are they going to do? They're going to murder three Tavir and the Dragon Reborn for not falling in line? What are they, what are they going to do? Like, you can throw in all the threats you just want. Just cut them a bit. These boys know that they're not going to do anything to them. Just bleed them a little. Yeah. <laughs> Hobble them. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> In in these couple chapters, my my opinion of Lan has swung back to like, geez, do not fuck with this guy. He's not their friend at all. Like he is a warder to Moraine first and foremost, and yes. well, know, a walking killing machine. He has also realized that, and I, I mean, if your primary objective, and as Moraine has put it to him in the Great Hunt at that Van Dien and mm. um, Aladius. Adelaide scene Adelaus. that he is foremostly there to protect and die for Moraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's got these young men who are crazy with the power, crazy with the wolves, <laughs> and Masima. I mean, there's there's just fucking loons around them. So yeah, he's 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 gotta definitely protect Moraine. And he might yeah. be on a heightened sort of easily land could have gone and slit that guy's throat, but no one will miss him till the morning and we'll be gone. But Lan is also like, he is, I mean, he, 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 there's a sense of honor to Lan, you know, yes. that what, you can't deny. Where's, where's the honor in protect, where's the loss of honor in protecting Moraes to die? By slitting some innocent man's throat? Protecting her identity for one night doesn't necessarily require the death of an innocent. But it did seem that he was going to do it. That, that, that picture is like, no, leave no. him. I thought that. Yep, that's my. That was my first. Like shit, Lan is gonna cancel him. Jody brought me back down to reality and <laughs> reminded me that Lan is not an immoral, honorless, you know, killing machine robot. He is 
from Melkir, Shinar, you know, like he is is bound to the White Tower, which is, mm. you know, ostensibly, quote unquote, good, you know, so he might have stuffed some in in a sack and dragged him out of the woods and hung him from a tree. Mm. Um, Chucked him in a river might, in a sack. Nothing serious. Like Jody said, <laughs> it wasn't going to be pleasant for for Simeon, like you no. said, but um, he was going to go act and um, it, it gave me pause for sure. Also, Simeon, while being distinctly toad-like, uh, has a brother that is big and heavy-shouldered, much like Perrin. Perrin. Uh, which just, you know, obviously... Well, I say obviously, but it seems like a, a deliberate ploy to draw a comparison between Perrin mm. and Gnome. Um, I tried to entertain the idea of like whether this like affinity with wolves is something that can actually affect was your Elias physical stature. And that's exactly the line of thinking yeah. I went down. Like, was Elias a big guy? I mean, Elias was a warder, but uh, he's not described as a large man with heavy he's shoulders. He's very sinewy yeah. and muscular. Mm. But not. But he's old, so he could have sort of yeah. slumped over now, maybe. Because you know, maybe mm. that's just a recessive gene in that world. <laughs> that kind of like, all right, you get this gene bonus: large shoulders, big burly guy. Negatives go crazy, like get yellow eyes and become a wolf. <laughs> crazy like a wolf. <laughs> I like that um, Simeon, who you also said, Vili, really, like in the beginning, he seems like a real like. <laughs> just a, 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 a knuckle-dragging mouth breather, right? Like just a, <laughs> a, a toad man porch sweeper. But towards the end, he shows uh, obviously some intelligence in figuring out that Moraine is an Aes Sedai. Uh, he draws the connection between Perrin and his brother and asks him for help because of that. And then right at the end, when Perrin has um, freed Gnome, I can't remember how the conversation goes exactly, but Perrin is worried about whether Simeon might think that he is a dark friend or Shadowspawn or something like that because of his eyes or because of, you know, who's following Rand and all that sort of stuff. And Perrin, and he says to Perrin, uh, a dark friend would not have been concerned about how my brother dies. And mm. Perrin's, Perrin's act in setting Gnome free actually cements in Simeon's mm. mind that uh, they're okay, that they're good people. Is it at this um the period where Simeon tells him that uh, the uh, white cloaks had also spoke of a dark friend with yellow eyes, and that's why they hid his mm, brother yeah. in and locked him up there because they were scared yes. that the town would be associated with dark friends if they saw his brother with his yellow yeah. eyes. And in saying, and he spoke of a man, Perrin Ibarra from the two rivers, who's a dark friend yes, with yellow eyes. They named and him. And looking at Perrin at that time. And it's like, but I can't think a dark man that can treat my brother like this. Or yeah. a person that can treat as a dark friend at all. Yes. So it was um, not just, which ban him? Ban him? Yeah, so, so Simeon showed some real um, critical thinking there, which was, was great. And some appreciation of, uh, mm. of Perrin's kind-hearted nature. He's not a country oh. bumpkin. No. Okay. Anything else from that chapter? No, we really squeezed every last drop. <laughs> We're squeezing hard, yeah. We're squeezing real hard. Well, <laughs> I could I could ask the question, why would Rand's presence as a Deveran cause weddings? Well, it just causes oh, random you have to things. ask RJ. It just it causes like the the pattern just sort of like churns unnaturally around where Rand is. So where he's going just I mean, later in the books, you hear ad nauseum about people that tripped on a banana peel and hit their head and died, where every other day they would have been fine. And mm. someone falling from a roof and landing on their feet 
just because Rand passed through the city, you know, like mm. th- you're constantly reminded throughout the series, wherever Rand goes and weird shit starts happening, that this is just him being such a powerful Tiberian and, you know, the laws of physics seem to be defied wherever he goes. And it's just like, I think specifically weddings and the weirdness from the White Cloaks is called out to show that it's like just anything, anything, like all of reality shifts around Rand wherever he goes. Well, I suppose there's in a small village where everyone knows everyone what's going to happen. They're either going to kill each other or marry each other. Yeah. And and I think the message that comes through is that either one of those things are equally as likely. Mm. Yeah. It could have been something way worse, but this time it happened to be weddings. Phew. Phew. Yeah, bullet dodged. <laughs> yeah. Depending on who you're marrying, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on to chapter nine. Jody, why don't you take us through Wolf Dreams? What? Another chapter about dreams, you say? Weird. Wolves? Weird. Wolves? Dreams? So Perrin's uh, snuck back into his room where his food is waiting for him and getting cold. He's not in the mood to eat at all. This whole gnome situation has has rattled him something fierce. And he doesn't <laughs> want to sleep. He doesn't want to do anything. Uh, so he heads over to Moraine's room. <laughs> and the knock on the door, I wrote you, is like, I've been expecting you, Mr. Bond. It's typical. (laughs) (laughs) He knocks on the door and she says, come inside, Perrin. He already knows it's him. And yeah, we see a little bit more of a softening from Moraine and from Perrin as well. So he wants Mm. to know more about his wolfiness now and if he's going to obviously end up like Gnome. Mm. And Moraine has very little knowledge. And what she does is actually gleaned from her little visit with Van Deen and Adelaus where she found a scrap of paper while looking for something else. I mean, isn't this Mm -hmm. always the way of things, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Looking for something else and you stumble upon a little treasure. So she was just with them the other day. I suppose this is now like six months ago, whenever it was. (laughs) Um, And uh, he's very confrontational. Like, tell me what you know. I need to know everything. But eventually softens towards her, like I said. Um, Mm. And what info she does have is mostly about the world of dreams. So she says... Specifically, a world of dreams. We talk about the article she uses here. Not the world of dreams, as if mm-hmm. she knows what it is. Does Moraine have no idea about Telanriod? Or she knows that maybe there are multiple worlds of dreams. I don't know. Maybe I don't there's think so. one Telanriod. Um, what they introduce later in the story is the concept of a dream shard. Yeah where someone constructs a reality in a dream world. So, I don't know. I don't... This is another thing that I've been meaning to talk about because there's a talk of the wolf dream and the world of dreams as if they're two separate things, but they're not. They're the same thing. I think there's only one world of dreams, kind of like Shadesmar, kind of that like connects all the different yes. worlds, yeah, below yes. the surface. So, yeah, anyway, that's that's what I think of this because just, just that she says a world of dreams and not the... I cannot remember a specific time where Moraine is ever the one consulted on how the world of dreams or the wolf dream works. It's always yeah. the the Aiel wise ones or the wolves themselves, you know, dream walkers. But shouldn't it's she not know Moraine's it? strong suit? She knows of it because they were Aes Sedai dream walkers. Anaya knows about it. She and Anaya are friends. I mean, exactly. Anaya is talking to Egwene about it all the time. But they, I mean, they don't know that. Maybe they don't know that these dreamwalkers are working, walking in the world of dreams. They're just maybe in your dreams, you know, that the ability to enter your mind. Yeah, they, that's what they maybe, think it is. Maybe but the I'm, Browns know. 
Maybe the Browns know, but surely they would have shared that over hundreds and hundreds of years in the White Tower. I don't know. It just seems like Moraine doesn't know what the world of dreams is, and that's confusing to me. I thought she knew okay. everything. She's <laughs> not from the Brown Archer. She's only concerned with her Blue Archer business. Remember, the Brown Archer knows a great deal of very things. <laughs> yes, but they know a great deal and they keep it to themselves? Surely they would share it with the rest of the White Tower. They're not, they're not reds or blacks. They're not doing PowerPoint presentations about the world of dreams. They're <laughs> writing it in a book and sticking it in a library for anyone that's interested to go in. Every Monday, there's a meeting in the Great Hall. PowerPoint presentations. What we've learned this week. Just in the slack that day. Oh, guys, we figured something out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, look, if they, yeah, they have, their communication is notoriously bad. So, True. possibly, possibly. So, but Perrin eventually and reluctantly asks Moraine to help him. Like, he is mm. terrified that he's going to lose himself to this. Yeah. So, he eventually softens towards Moraine and asks. But she's powerless, really, to help him. She can't do anything about it. But she does promise, you know, mm -hmm. whatever she can do, she will. Um, he asks her about shielding the dreams or shielding his dreams. She's like, no, it doesn't work like that. First of all, Lan has his, you know, dreams shielded because he's my warder. Mm -hmm. And um, she doesn't need another, she doesn't need another warder. And he's like, <laughs> he's in a monologue at that point. He's like, Jesus, imagine that wolfiness <laughs> and being trapped with an ice my whole life. Just kill me now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the problem with him is that she can ward dreams so that outside influences don't get inside. But the problem with him is it's from the inside. It's from inside his own mm. head that he's, he's going yeah. in. So this is just like literally nothing she can do. So he's like, all right, well, thanks for nothing. No, I'm joking. <laughs> so she goes back to his room and he's, he's afraid to sleep, obviously, because the dreams will come. So he chucks mm. his, his blankets on the floor and he opens all the windows, doesn't light a fire. He's trying to make himself as uncomfortable as possible, which... Helps absolutely nothing because <laughs> within seconds of lying down on the floor, he's asleep. And guess where he is? Back in the world of dreams. And he's in this long hallway with, with high ceilings in this uh, dimly lit area where we can't tell where the light is coming from. The whole shebang. And Hopper is there. And he's like, what? Hopper tells him, danger, run. Um, and he's like, wait, no, Hopper's dead. So the wolf, the wolf dream or the world of dreams is wolf heaven. You know, all wolves go to heaven eventually, and this is where it is. <laughs> so he's taking the advice of Hopper, and he starts running through the halls. Mm -hmm. And one of these intersections through all these halls, he meets this strange man who uh, who's dressed very weirdly, has got a strange accent. Now, this has always intrigued me, this man. So I went online and looked on uh, forums and wikis and things like that, and there's not mm -hmm. really any consensus. Some people say he's a Sharon. Uh, other people mm -hmm. say he's just, you know, uh, maybe from Ibu Dar or from someplace like that that has a weird accent. Some I can't mm. remember somebody in Randland, some country where they have where they dress like this because he's dressed in like a bright yellow breeches, like he's almost as as garish as a tinker kind of a thing. Yeah, but he's he's like he's he, he's a high lord. He's some sort of lord because he's very pompous and he refers mm. to to Perrin as a peasant. So anyway, in my research online, he's nobody. Really, mm -hmm. it's like a nothing, a nothing comment. Trapped in there, or is he also just in yeah. a dream and hanging around? He's in there a dream, and he's somehow in his dreams. He's slipped into the world of dreams, like he's he's not in mm. his in his own head anymore. And that's unfortunate for him because the shadows reach down from the ceiling and rip his skin off in one foul swoop, splattering blood all over Perrin, which is mm -hmm. pretty good. Like I really thought that this guy in this hallway who dies in this way is significant. 
but apparently it's not just <laughs> some no. random shit happening in the world is of he, dreams. Is he dead just in the dream there, or is he not? No, he's dead, dead. Um, in one of the form- forums that I read, there was a comment like later on, you read about a, a nobleman who was found skinned alive in, in his bedchambers. So oh, it wow. does come up later on that I don't know how true that is. It, there wasn't any reference to what book or what chapter that was in. So maybe it was a dark friend that just didn't do what he was supposed to do. And then they're like, oh, well, let's get him in here and punish him tonight. No, throughout the story, you read about people that appear in the world of dreams purely by being unlucky and dreaming themselves into it. Mm. Like it there happens. are normal people just from everyday life that appear there. Hmm. There's no, no one is like drawing that one person in that we can tell about at all. It's not like a, a punishment necessarily, but they also put a lot of emphasis in how um, uncontrollable nightmares are. Because in the world of dreams, later in the story, there are also nightmares that even dreamwalkers struggle to escape from. Mm. And there's this thing about pulling people into the dreams, what you mentioned earlier about dream shards. And I think mm-hmm. the only way you can pull somebody into Telanriot is by is through into a dream shard. Like when somebody right. pulls you into the world of dreams, it's not into the general world of dreams. It's into a specific subsection, subfolder of, <laughs> of this. Yeah. yeah, Into a dream shard. And then creating mm. a dream shot is a whole other skill that you've got to learn. And then later there's a dream spike. And there's... <laughs> there's I don't even remember that. You don't? Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Man, we are going to be educating ourselves big time. <laughs> sure. I think I'll pay attention to my reading this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully. So, uh, yeah. So this guy gets his skin ripped off in one fell swoop. And he's still alive, lying on the floor, screaming... Uh, mm-hmm. before he bleeds out, obviously. And his clothes are still on. Like, whatever ripped his skin off, ripped it out, like, underneath. Like, you pull a tablecloth out underneath plates and glasses yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And his shriek is echoing down the hall. So, things are not looking good. So, Perrin's this entire time just trying to wake up. He knows he's in the dream world. Uh, yeah. And he's freaking out. He's punching walls, trying to wake up and, and just get out of there because he keeps hearing danger. And Hopper again telling him, run, get out of here. This is great danger. So he continues running and he <laughs> runs straight into Lanfear's room. Um, just take <laughs> yeah. these guys. They really just get themselves into situations. So he runs into this room and there's Lanfear. And this is what I'm talking about, the warning. If you see a beautiful woman run, but he doesn't. He stops and, and has a look at her. Well, I suppose. Wouldn't we all? But uh, <laughs> I can't blame the guy. She is very surprised to see him there. She's oh, like, yes. How did, when did you, what the? Uh, and then she says, you will ruin things that you don't even know about or something like that, but you're going to ruin mm. things. Does she know and has she seen Perrin? Yeah, she offered him that um, that glass of wine when he was in the ornate golden armor with a lion head. Yes. In the previous episode. Yeah, because she knows. She's like, you, what are you doing here? How did you get here? You know, she recognizes mm. him, but she's surprised to see him there. And yeah. he's going to ruin some plans. That mm. That's what Taviran do. They, mm-hmm. they ruin forsaken plans. So get mm-hmm. used to it. Um, she is, of course, the master of the world of dreams. So mm-hmm. she disappears, takes the whole room with her at the same time. And the way they describe it is it flattens and then turns into a sinuous white line, just like mm-hmm. traveling does. Yeah. Does she travel in the world of dreams and travel the whole fucking room out of there? Maybe. It's a very similar description. Very similar description. That's what I'm thinking. So anyway, 
she's gone and he's standing on the edge by the doorway where the floor just suddenly ends in endless blackness and he's like Woof, fall. Mm-hmm. Just get back up get out of there because you know you fall down there you'll never stop falling let me just translate fuck for our listeners and that is <laughs> oh fuck i think sorry that just slipped out but i'm sure people get it by now um he uh, he hears again run uh, great danger more than all the never born um, and of course, Perrin is like, Jesus, that, that, that got to be bad. <laughs> That's a lot of danger. That's a lot of danger right there. <laughs> and Hopper eventually is like, this guy's a moron. He's not going to leave. So Hopper kills him in the dream by lurching for his throat and gets him back out of the world of dreams. And Perrin sits upright in his, on the floor in his, in his room in the inn again, grabbing for his throat, thinking that he's going to find blood. But his throat is fine. But he is actually covered with the blood of the guy that had his skin ripped off. And there's mm-hmm. like a scene where he gets up and he looks in the mirror. And he's like, oh, shit. Oh, no, no, there's no mirror. It's olden days. He's washing in the wash basin yeah. and the water and comes out pink. pink and, yeah. Yes, exactly. So he sees the blood and it's, it's over his clothes and everything. So he just like rips off the clothes and washes himself clean. And that is kind of mm-hmm. gross. I, I get it. So then again, you know, he's just like, oh, Simeon could throw this shit away. <laughs> like, yeah. Simeon could deal with this. Burn the clothes. Uh, then we end with him and we jump over to Rand. Because now I think this is the first time we see Rand yeah. since since his, uh, his little escape, his mm-hmm. little uh, Houdini act, and he is huddling under trees like a madman in the night, uh, yeah. being hunted by dogs. Now I specifically think that these are not dark hounds that are hunting him. Oh, really? Why do you say that? Because dark hounds are notoriously difficult to kill. They are not affected by the one power, and they don't turn up that often. And he kills them with the one power. With balefire. Are you sure? The way they describe the dogs is not the way that dark hounds are described. But anyway, so get into that. I don't know. I'm just gotta I'm just gonna mm. be devil's advocate here. But yes, please. Is dogs just rolling around the bush in the area howling at each other, hunting rand? No, the they have a master. Dogs? Somebody is controlling them to hunt rand or you know, using dogs to hunt him. You mean mm-hmm. dark friends sending their dark hounds? <laughs> yeah, dark hounds are not controlled by dark friends. Okay. Do, do they okay. have like uh, do they have like Alsatians at the bidding pool? <laughs> Let me pose this to you. Mm. Rand's wound is throbbing, mm-hmm. as it does in the presence of other Shadowspawn. Oh snap! You got him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his wound could be throbbing from anything. Maybe it's the master of the hounds, you know, the master of the hounds that's, that's Shadowspawn or whatever. I don't know. Possibly I could be very wrong. It's just the, the image I have in my mind of what a dark hound did does not match the description of this book. That dog was the white teeth in the night and he was big ass neck, like mastiff. That's exactly what a dark yes. hound is. And a dark hound is the twisted souls of dead wolves, not mastiffs. Yeah, but they are also described as having thick and thick necks and big heads and being, you know, as mm. tall as a man's waist. And well, I don't know. That's not. I'll have to go back to that because I just watched a video recently on YouTube about this, about like the top ten most dangerous shadow spawn, and like number one was dark hounds. Like, and there's just so wow. few of them. You don't see them that often in the series because they're yeah. so overpowered. We we used to think that Madral is pretty up there, and mm. Perrin just beheaded one with an axe while barefoot in, in his underwear. So the idea that a dark hound is being bale fired, sword bale fired to death here is not 
not beyond the realm of the story. I don't think Rand is using his sword. Is he? No. He's just shooting it out of his hand. It channels like a white light of... Hmm. Yeah. Stabs him with the light. But that's just what Balefire looks like. Balefire, Mm. when everybody channels it, it looks the same, like a a hot, white hot beam of or bar of light that shoots from your hands. So anyway, uh, he's huddling under those trees and there's one of those dogs attacks him and he Balefires the fuck out of it. He knows nothing about channeling, but he knows Balefire. So is this Luz protecting him? Now, okay, maybe this, this does come back to, to them being dark hounds because the only way to destroy them then would be Balefire. Um, and he doesn't know Balefire, so it must be Luz in reactionary mode mm. trying to protect mm, his dark ass. Hounds. Like, dark hounds, the only thing we can do is Balefire. You better learn this weave quickly. So yeah, it's, Check this it's, trick out. Yeah, <laughs> it's adios, dog. And yeah. then also the way that they communicated afterwards, like howling, howling, howling from all different directions. Any dog can do that, right? Wolves, dogs. He got bail fired. Like normal <laughs> dogs won't know that my mate just got axed over here. Now they're hunting him and calling to each other. You've actually made a point for them being dark hounds. Like mm, that, that so? idea that Luce Theron recognizes that they're dark yeah, hounds. And that's what I said now. To bail yeah. fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because now you've, you've made me think about this a bit more. Like, uh, because obviously, then when did, how did land. Land. Rand learn Balefire. It must be Luce Theron, but if Luce Theron mm. is pushing Balefire on him instead of fireball or lightning or something, yeah. it must be for a reason. So maybe these are mm. dark hounds. That mm-hmm. was you've you've changed my line of thinking. Does Rand mention that he's killed some of these already in yes. this night? Yes. Yeah. I think this is uh, only the second the second one he kills is in this scene. But right. we get the feeling that he's been hunted for a long time and now he's got mm. this I am no easy meat. Now he's like yeah, mm. like I figured out how to do this, how to how to channel and how to control it and how to defend mm. myself. He's like, if you want to hunt me, come. I am no easy meat is what he thinks. And then we hear the dogs howling at each other in the distance and the hunt continues and that's how the chapter ends. Did you guys also think that um, Rand is without his horse? Yes, he seems on foot. Mm-hmm. Maybe the dark hounds got him. I think I read somewhere in my horse research around Stepper and Stan. <laughs> I'm sure you did. I think, I think Red was, I, that's probably why I um, tripped over into assuming it's Dark Hounds because I think I read that Red was killed by a pack of Dark Hounds in the Dragon Reborn. Hmm. That's a person running some obscure Horses of Wheel of Time blog, <laughs> right? So like, that's by no means yes. the Bible. Uh, but... Uh, all all signs to me lead to to dark hounds, but that is a totally uninformed opinion, right? That is just me going on my memory of what these terrible hounds could be. Don't they also like melt the ground where they walk, and their their saliva is poisonous, can kill you at the touch, and like there's all kinds of insane. Yeah, they're nasty animals. Attributes, nasty shadow mm. spawn. Mm. But then again, there's things up in the. Um, the blight that is nastier than them, I reckon. Worms. Worms and oh, yeah. pack of worms and <laughs> what else? And water serpents with hands growing out of their back. <laughs> <laughs> Regular run-of-the-mill mm. stuff. Was there anything else in that chapter, Joe? No, that's about it that I found. Rand just saying, I'm no easy meat. I just found, yeah, that Balefire is considered one of the few things known to reliably destroy any kind of dark hound. Any kind of dark hounds. So now that opens types. up 
opens up even more questions. Okay. New podcast idea. <laughs> Creation. Dark hounds are created by twisting the soul of a wolf. And the wolves refer to them as shadow brothers. Shadow brothers. Well, there are also many types of wolves. So we've now learned there's the mountain yeah. wolves that's more shaggy. So maybe they're confronting mountain dark hounds at the moment. Or the, the more placid low level, lowland dark hound. <laughs> And then you've got the the more aggressive swamp dark hound. <laughs> the one from Sherlock Holmes dark hound, that one. <laughs> oh, that that's from the Baskervilles. The, yes. Okay. My notes for that chapter. Pretty slim. Mm. Yeah. Pretty much covered it all, I think. We had a little discussion yeah. there about dark hounds. I was so convinced that uh, it was not dark hounds because now that... I, in, while I was reading the stuff, you I did a bit of googling, mm. and I saw a photo uh, or an image of something that, and that's the last image I saw of dark hounds, which is like looks like a greyhound, and that's probably what mm. what tainted my mm. my perception in this chapter. It was just like some fan art. I was like, oh right, but could definitely no. be dark hounds. <laughs> Certainly not canon. I mean, there's no. a lot of Wheel of Time art out there, including the art in that white wheel, World of Wheel of Time book that is. Bad. I don't know how I don't know how anyone decided that that's I mean hey I am no artist right yeah kudos to those people for painting them but a lot of it is real left field stuff that I do not do not hold as canon at all <laughs> no, sorry no. Harriet no. I do not agree anyway oh uh, yes my notes my notes for that chapter were the two friends are obviously Adelaide and Van Dien. Mm-hmm. Uh, ran side aching because proximity to Shadowspawn, mm-hmm. no horse, pale fire. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Why did we spend 20 go. minutes talking about it? You could have just said that. <laughs> Why All is right, Rand running around like Peyton Fane and a madman without his well, horse? He's being hunted and he doesn't have a horse. His but horse where's Red? Dead. And Chad. Red is dead. Red's dead. <laughs> Red's dead, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Pulp Fiction? Zed's yeah. dead. <laughs> Zed's dead. <laughs> okay. Uh, chapter 10. Oh, it's my chapter. Hmm. Chapter 10 is called Secrets. Now, for the first time in a long time, we step away from our beefy boy and we join Egwene, uh, Nynaeve, Elaine, Varen, Matt and Huron as they slowly approach Tarvalon. Egwene can... Uh, Almost make out the White Tower, uh, but she had spotted Dragon Mount on the previous day, so they are getting quite close now. She's still thinking about uh, never being collared again and never losing her freedom again. She's obviously still super raw from from the Adam, um, not physically but emotionally, um, and this actually drives some of her behavior later in this chapter. Because they've been traveling for a while now, right? It's been all winter, so basically three months they've been traveling, and she's still like, this is just a random thought she's having. I will never be trapped again. She's mm. totally got PTSD or something. 100%. Uh, I mean, it comes up throughout the books. Mm. She's thinking about Anaya and further studying her dreams because she's been having these dreams about Rand, you know, being being chased by by something or someone. And she catches herself looking forward to seeing Galad at the White yeah. Tower and quickly like tries to snuff out that thought. We learn that they've been traveling for a whole season because she's seeing signs of the spring. And when Nynaeve suggests that she should be keeping watch instead of... Um, daydreaming and muttering to herself, Egwene hits back with, uh, 
keep saying it, Gwen, and I'm going to keep saying it. <laughs> and she hits back with a question about how how do you think Moraine is treating Lan? Uh, and that's that sort of that jab we were talking about before. Yeah. And she immediately regrets saying it. It doesn't come naturally to her. No. Because Nynaeve has a reaction to it as well. She has a sharp tug of her braid. <laughs> and when Gwen asks Nynaeve if she thinks Rand is all right, um, Nynaeve is quick to blame their misfortune on on Moraine. She quickly finds any excuse to turn into like, ever since that bloody Moraine arrived, you know, our, our lives have been in complete disarray. Yeah. Rand is the dragon reborn because of Moraine. Yes. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah, Nynaeve, you know, well-known and famous rational person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, um, she, Nynaeve, then mentions something um, not feeling right. Um, you know, she's got the ability to, to talk to the wind and she feels something uh, that feels like a, a brewing storm coming up, but the weather is totally fine. They don't see any signs of any weather. Egwene worries about something impeding them from actually delivering Matt to the tower because Matt's been really, really sick. Um, he's in a litter slung between two horses and he hasn't roused in three days. So he's been unconscious for three days. And we read a little bit further that he's actually got the horn of Valir at his feet, like just under a like a cloth or something. Yes, just sort of like dumped it in his litter, uh, which seems irresponsible. Huron also looks troubled. Um, he senses something is amiss. Um, his hunches had been right in the past twice already. He's had a hunch the first time they sort of played it down, and then the innkeeper and the and some people in the town they were staying in tried to murder them in their sleep. And the next yes. time Huron said, "I think there's trouble," Varen's like, "Okay, we're out of here. Let's go. Um, <laughs> Saddle up." And he's and he's thinking that now, like he thinks he looks he looks troubled. Egwene thinks that like when when Matt was still well, they the two of them, Huron and Matt, had sort of joked together and played cards and stuff. Uh, and now he seemed really worried, so that's given her pause. He mentions when she asked him that um, the previous day he saw the tracks of 20 to 30 um, horses, mm. uh, so riders, um, and he doesn't know who that could be. So it's got him a little bit worried and he can smell something is a bit is a bit strange, but off, which seems to be a theme for uh, people with olfactory talents like Perrin mm. who smelled the white cloaks and now the white cloaks are also uh, raising Huron's hackles a little bit. Pause there quickly. Vili, you said to put a pin on the smell mm, that Perrin just, uh, came through through Jarrah. Did you also think it was Payton Fane? I, I, yes. Like, for some reason, I thought that it might be, but he's busy working his magic all the way back in uh, the Antero, isn't he? Could he? In, well, in Amadissia. No, he's in Amadissia. He's, he, he's, he's with the White Lakes now. And Jarrah is on the border of Amadissia. <sighs> Potentially. But, I mean, I mean, would he have come to Jarrah through the Mountains of the Mist? I don't think he would have. He would have. Because he was, he was at Plain, Falmer, he right? over the, so Yeah, he would have gone over the... He would have avoided the mountains completely and just yeah. gone straight to Amadisia. Um, but the, the, the severity of the smell that Perrin mentions there immediately made me think of Fane. But mm. could it have been just the White Cloaks? Like I was hey, just could saying, it like be Aaron the Dark Hounds? Hey. Ah. Not a mm. bad thought. To Perrin, that would probably be an especially offensive smell scent. Mm. Mm. So maybe that was, and yeah, we wanted to get back into that. So, Jody, that's even more fodder than there to, to blast your normal dog. <laughs> I've already changed my opinion and I agree with you guys. <laughs> Stop <laughs> hounding me. <laughs> Stop dog hounding me. <laughs> Stop dog hounding you. <laughs> um, okay. Unpause. So, um, Elaine joins um, 
Egwene and Nynaeve and um, <laughs> they're, they're sort of talking about just how much trouble they're really going to be in when they get back to the tower. Um, they think about what could happen uh, if they're attacked on the way um, and Nynaeve says she'll do what needs to be done. She knows that Varen is bound by the oaths, but she's making no bones about the fact that she's not going to hold back, which is, is funny because Egwene is actually the one that, that lashes out first. But Nynaeve is sort of setting, maybe she's giving Egwene in this comment, she's giving her a bit of leeway to just act. Not consciously, obviously, but maybe when Egwene is faced with that situation, she subconsciously remembers that Nynaeve said she will directly contradict the oaths if she has to, because she hasn't taken them yet. And while they are sort of talking about this riders do approach and they turn out to be a group of white cloaks and they sort of block the road and they fan out in front of them, sort of, you know, <laughs> making very little pretense about their, uh, their intentions. They are quite clearly barring the way. And then they, I mean, they talk and Varen is trying to talk around them and they're sort of like throwing their weight around and sort of insisting that, you know, or intimating at least that they would be, uh, if the women don't come clean, they're just going to take them back to their camp and sort of um, basically arrest them. So Varen tells the others, look, you know, just stay out of this. I'll do all the talking. But when it seems like um, her talking is not really going to be effective enough, Elaine decides to throw her title as the daughter heir of Andor out there as hmm. like a, a deterrent for them. And they sort of just laugh at that and they go, I think you might find that Morgais is not so amenable to, to I to die anymore. Exactly. Yeah, the witches, as they like to call them. And the, the comment and his response only seems to embolden their leader, who we find out at the end of this chapter is Dane Bornhold. Mm -hmm. um, so Bornhold um, is just when he seems emboldened by this exchange, Egwene decides to to lash out because she is just so deathly afraid of being taken captive, whether it's with an Adam or by the White Cloaks. I mean, she's been caught by the White Cloaks before. Mm -hmm. She was the subject of uh, a, a fair bit of manhandling by Child Bayar at the hands of, or at, under the um, instruction of Geo from Bornholt. Um, so she channels and she causes like a fountain of earth to erupt near one of the horses, uh, one of the horse white cloaks. And this causes the horse to obviously buck the rider and he hits the ground and he hasn't even hit the ground yet. And she's turning to the next one. And she starts channeling and to do the same. So she's purposefully not causing damage to them. She doesn't want to use the power as a weapon, but she is using it to unhorse them and to cause um, confusion. And she notices immediately Nynaeve and Elaine are copying her weaves, yeah. which is cool. Like, all right, cool. They now also know how to do this thing. They just need to see her do it. And it's like a, it's a, it's a through line of, of all of these, the girls and Rand, you know, like they learn extremely quickly um, mm -hmm. out of necessity and out of probably being uh, innately adept at using, using the one power. Taviran. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yes. So, um, Varen is aghast. She, she, her eyes oh. are bulging, you know, like she is just not okay with what is happening here. Um, and when all the white cloaks are in disarray, like and all the men except their leader, except Bornold, have have fled, he's sort of left there with, with these women now by himself. And he, he sort of just stands there and he goes, go ahead and kill me like you did my father. But Varen it just ignores him and just starts chastising the girls. You know, she is making them understand in no uncertain terms that if they even ever get to Aes Sedai, they would never be allowed to live this down and blah, 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 blah. Just making a big deal about not using, which is pretty rich for someone that has, you know, mm. joined the Black Arger. Mm -hmm. 
so when they when they when they're saying about like what are we going to do about this Bornhold now, Varen maintains that she could have talked away around him, but I don't think Varen is really. I mean, she's not privy to all the information we as readers are. She thinks that she can talk her way around Bornhold, but I think that his built-in hatred of the Aes Sedai, based on the lies the child Byar carried from Folme. I mean, he was already a white cloak. I mean, yeah. he was already irrational, right? Um, just this news about his dad. Varen doesn't know um, that he had this information. So she thinks that she could have spoken, you know, talked their way through it and that he was only posturing and that sort of thing. But I don't think that that is the case. I think he was crazy enough to actually try and do something about it. So in this chastising, Egwene eventually says, okay, fine, I'm sorry. She apologizes to Bornhold. She thinks about how glad she is she hasn't taken the three oaths, but she's yeah. not sorry. So she's straight up lying. Sorry, not um, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She even offers to him, like, I'm sure Varen Sadai could heal your bruises, you know, and he <laughs> is just like, <laughs> there's no no effing way that's happening. And in fact, he, he draws his sword um, and he's just, he's livid. He's going on about his dad, right? So... Varen continues to ignore him and leads them just around him. So he's standing there raving at them and Varen's just not even acknowledging his presence and they ride around him and continue on their way. And he shouts after them, shouting, remember my name, I will make you fear my name. Hmm. Um, which I don't think he actually ever achieves because A, White Cloak, who, who the fuck cares about them? And B, he's just self-entitled because he was the son of Jeff and Bornold. Like he was already a twit mm. in Bailon and things don't seem to have gotten any better. <laughs> was uh, this the same one that Matt got uh, with the barrels? Yes, exactly. Um, I should mention also that uh, when Egwene was apologizing to Bornholt, she said that we've been on a long ride all the way from Toman Head and that's mm. when Bornald makes the connection mm. and he says it's like, ah you killed my dad you killed my father you were at Falme yeah yeah so he's he's not going to be reasoned with in any way but it is again like you, you just when when Egwene says it when she says we've ridden from Toman Head she when you read the words Toman Head you you feel Varen's yeah. <laughs> yeah. disappointment <laughs> and just like Egwene what are you doing shut up up like i mean these kids just do not shut up they don't know when to shut up i actually said shut up Egwene out loud when i read this and christina was next to me at the computer and she was just laughing ah she's also read these chapters but then so they keep they keep writing and bornold is shouting in the background and as they finally approach tarvalon Varen says to them now you must truly be on your guard because now the real danger begins mm -hmm. and that echoes that echoes the, the thing that min uh, said to Perrin earlier yeah. when uh, Perrin was like, at least you'll be safe in Tavalon. And Min is like, oh, are you insane? That place <laughs> is a, a viper's nest. You know, like that, that is not the safest place to be. Um, there's powerful allies, but powerful enemies as well. They should surely now know that, I mean, it's not like, oh, we're home, we're safe. The last time they were there... <laughs> They were kidnapped by one of the big people. <laughs> they were summoned from their room by a Black Arja member into the hands of the Shrimp I mean, so, yeah. it's kind of like, all right, I'm coming back here. Where's that viper that took us out of here in this viper nest? So. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see everything that plays out here now. Like, what mm. is the story? Like, I mean, who who knows about what has happened to Leandrin? Has she disappeared? Has she tried to sort of embed herself in the tower again? Um Let's read and find out. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. what we'll do. But did you guys have anything else to say about that chapter? I mean, not a lot going on there. Matt is sick. They're almost there. Mm. I do. I do have something to okay. say. 
Now, there's a point where um, Huron gets all like nervous or uncomfortable and he rides up ahead to go and join Varen. And there's a comment by one of the girls saying like, in the beginning, he was very reluctant to hang around Varen. Now, is mm-hmm. that because he can smell the violence on her? Surely, if she's Black Aja, she must have been ordered or made to mm. do something very un-Aesodai, and he can smell it on her. He can smell the violence, Because he apparently, he was very uncomfortable with her at the beginning when they joined ah. in. And he's like, he can smell yeah. something's wrong with this woman. No, that's like that's something that I didn't even think about. Yeah, I thought he was just sort of like... Um deferential to an ice Sedai, yeah. but that's that is certainly something that would um that would track might be put exactly a, that put a pin in that for callbacks next week <laughs> or next time or whenever okay should we do the last chapter here chapter 11 tarvalon that's it they have uh reached the island where tarvalon is on they've seen the mountain and they're entering one one of the four towns or what would you call them the bridge towns at the several, there's several bridges crossing into the tower. And this one is called Darain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have an introduction of a new map in the book, which is quite yes. nice in the sense that you can see what's around the area. But man, it's, I've, uh, after that introduction with someone called it Vagina Island. <laughs> was it the boys from the Black Tower yes, podcast? The Black Tower, <laughs> totally the Black Tower podcast. Yes, and I was like, since then, I was like, oh man, this is this is now vagina island for me. <laughs> well, since we're talking about it, I did take note of the fact that the map orientation is weird. If you take a look at the direction of north, north, yes, you it's, it's not up. Book yes, bit, yes, it is like it's pointing at like two o'clock. Mm. Um. So the orientation of the city was chosen specifically to be, you know, 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock, which does make it that much more evocative. Yes, it's a good, I mean, I don't read fantasy books for anything but fantasy, but <laughs> <laughs> but now you're getting a bit of anatomy thrown in. Yes. All right, let's move on from the, the because I've got a big note here about the map. I didn't draw anything. I just wrote map. Um, <laughs> that is the most useless map in the world. Yes. Um, it did show, sorry, one last thing about the map. It did show where the Ogier Grove is in yes. relation to the tower. So I could paint that little picture in my mind a bit clearer of like when the girls were led in there. And also for later on, the North and the South Harbour which is also mm. quite instrumental for an event quite a bit later on. Mm. Interesting. Now that you say that, and I know I'm digressing completely, but um, those those harbors are not due north and due south. No. If you look at the orientation of the map. No, they're the towards only slightly more north, more north and slightly other. more south. Yes. But yes. It's much more suited to like a west and east harbor. South, uh, north... Uh, 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 a northwesterly <laughs> west, harbour northwest and harbor. a southeasterly harbour. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue, does it? No, it doesn't. But anyway, okay. the north and the south okay, harbour. Let's get in this. I'll let it go. Little town is red roofed, red brick. You know, it's got a little air around it, but uh, it's it's had its shit in the days. It was burned down in the Hawking days. It was burned down in the War of Hundred Years and plundered. It was... The Trolloc Wars, the Aiel War. Bunch, yeah. 
and there's like there's been a lot of times, but they've always rebuilt it because obviously the proximity to the tower, there's always going to be something going on there. Um, they more soldiers, like all of a sudden, there's a lot more sort of ranked soldiers, all of them with their white uh, fang of Tarvalon. What is it? The drop of the flame. Fang of the flame. <laughs> <laughs> Close. You had some of the letters. Yeah, I got some of them. Uh, and uh, they much more regimented, like, you know, lances, wide-rimmed archers, full quivers of archers. They're all at the ready. Mm-hmm. So things, and I think the, there's a lot of uh, disturbance happening with the um, children of the light in the area. They've been mm. hitting these small towns and trying to cause a mock. And uh, Varen stops as they went across the bridge and sort of has a moment just asking the soldiers about the disruption there has been with the um, the children of the light. Has there been a bunch? He's like, yeah, no, well, the children's always around. So mm. we, we, we push them back when they get a little bit out of uh, control. They eventually go over this almost like white bridge. I imagine mm. all these bridges very thin, very elegant, very just an arch. No, mm. no pillars or anything. It's like a suspension yeah. bridge without the suspension mm. weirdness. So yeah, they uh, move over and the bridge into <laughs> Tarvalon and enters through the wide open gates where twenty men can stand abreast. Mm. And uh, it's like again, uh, Egwene, Egwene is mm-hmm. all um, like in awe at the city, the, in the fountains. It's just like a, a pretty little place. And uh, they eventually <laughs> get to the tower grounds and Varen veers them off and they go in through a side gate where it's also open, quick access. She speaks to two of the guards that's at the and one runs off and go. they go through with the horses to um, uh, a stable. And mm-hmm. she says, look, this, you girls just now, shut the fuck up. Like in, in no other word, just don't say anything like, don't yeah. say anything just be quiet the white cloaks were a test and you failed <laughs> and now you're in the viper's nest so hold your bloody tongues mm. like seriously just shut it so uh, they uh, get and uh, miriam sadai has been summoned with and she pitches sherim sherim <laughs> miriam as well <laughs> a new Asadai of my creation. <laughs> so Sherian was uh, summoned and she uh, arrives with three accepted. And mm-hmm. uh, she's like, okay, cool. Well, there's apparently a litter with a man that they need to take. So organizes that. And she's like, oh, yeah, you brought the runaways back. And immediately, Egwene just pipes up, why did not run away? Like, just want to argue, like typical stubborn. Um, mm-hmm. Eamon's feel the inner and mm-hmm. Verena has had enough and she's just like what is the polite word she used in bold caps I, I, I just wrote it shut the fuck up be silent like, be silent yes yes like, in capital letters like this is the hardest instruction they've ever received from Verena like you don't read capitalized text in the books unless it's the dark one speaking <laughs> mm. yeah yeah Exactly. So Robert Jordan really wants you to know that she was being very angry. Yeah, mm. she's she was fucking furious. Like, just shut up. Didn't I just tell you girls to shut the fuck up? What did I just say? As a parent of three, I can relate. <laughs> you can absolutely relate with Baron, hey? Like, I mean, the girls what? are our girls and I support them forever, but they are being <laughs> fucking stupid. Yeah, totally. Um, 
my five-year-old, as you know, a couple of months ago, fell off a wall and mm. split his head open. <laughs> Yesterday, yes. he was uh, doing parkour outside. He's five. He knows what parkour is. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Now we're doing parkour, jumping off walls outside again. <laughs> what did I just tell you? <laughs> <laughs> oh. But yes, they are acting like a bunch of five-year-olds. Yes, the yes. they very much are. And uh, to that, uh, Matt is taken away. And uh, Varen immediately grabs the, the bag that was at his feet. That's obviously got the mm-hmm. horn. And mm-hmm. I assume she's got the shards of the second broken seal or the two broken seals with her. Oh, I hadn't thought yes. of those, but yes. possibly. No, she has that with her as well. And she's like, I need to immediately speak to the Amaran seat. Like, this, mm, yeah. I need to go. And it's not necessary to put these girls in a cell, but, you know, keep them under guard. Take them to mm-hmm. their rooms. They need to be ready to come for a, a, um, a sum if they get summoned by the Amblin, whether they will be. And yeah. don't give them anything but dry bread, cold broth, and water. Like they can have anything else once the Amblin says it's okay. <laughs> Just wow. Like, all right, welcome back to the tower. And if they yeah. do step out of line, you're welcome to get them scrubbing pots. Like, yes. Yes, your <laughs> Here we are. The pot scrubbing is right back into the mix again. The, the most, the worst conceivable punishment <laughs> in the world. I don't know. Like, Elaine hates it. So maybe they just like tapping in on that princess hands of hers. To Elaine, it could be, it could actually be quite terrible. <laughs> well, there was also some switching involved. She mm-hmm. was going to, to beat her and then send her to pots. Mm. Mm. So yeah, either they they now really know that they are in the the shit, and uh, the mm-hmm. one um, accepted almost takes quite a bit of pleasure in the treatment of the girls. Foul lane, uh, foul lane. Yes. She uh, refers to um, naive as mm-hmm. the wilder. So a lot of disdain there. One that could yes. learn to channel before she even got there. But then the mm-hmm. other the- uh, theodron. Yep. Uh, she was quite like, no, no. You know, like you, I was also a wilder. Where's she from? Yeah. Copper skin. Copper skin always makes me think Damani. Damani. Mm. Yeah. Those words often go together. Yeah. Mm. So she's like, no, look, let them be. Let's, let's just get them to their, uh, their rooms so that they can wait for what comes to them naturally. But mm-hmm. uh, Gwaine starts thinking already, like, you picked already, uh, Theodore, whatever her name is, the other one. Uh, foul lane. Foul lane. It's like you you're gonna take choose the red if you eventually get mm-hmm. there. Like that's standing out in you. Yeah. Um but yeah, this is now them back into the tower. At least they've got cold broth and bread mm-hmm. and water and waiting their penance or whatever it is mm-hmm. that's gonna be coming their way. And that was that. Uh, anything else that you guys got out of that one then? I got a couple morsels. How about you, Joe? I was just looking at some stuff uh from the was it the previous chapter where we were talking? Oh, it was just this chapter talking about Hiran. My mm-hmm, theory that mm-hmm. he smelt violence on her. I would like to retract that statement <laughs> based on <laughs> just reading a few lines here from the, from the actual book. Um, mm-hmm. He dug his heels in and galloped forward before any of them could speak again. And uh, Elaine says, now that is a surprise as Hiran slowed a little distance from the brown sister. She didn't notice him leaving, uh, arriving next to her, and he wasn't, you know, he was content to leave it so. And, and Elaine says, he has been staying as far away from Varen as he could ever since we left Tom and Head. 
which made me think maybe that's why. But then she says, he always looks at her if she, if, as if he's afraid of what she might say. Maybe he's afraid that she'll call him out as a dark friend for his ability to sniff. And that's why he's hiding maybe. it throughout the whole book, saying he saw tracks. He didn't see tracks. He smelt them. He smelt all of this. He smelt it in the towns. He smelt the mm. violence. It's not hunches. It's not seeing tracks. But he's hiding his ability, and he, I think he fears that Varen might you know, say something about that. But Varen knows he's a sniffer. Mm. He was sent into Falmo specifically as one of the five because he can sniff out Pad and Fane. Mm. Why is he hiding it now? Because he specifically says he catches himself. I smell, and then he stops. And I have a hunch. He's he a good it. guy, man. He's just a good guy that is just scared <laughs> of. If, and I mean, anyone should be scared. Just a good of guy in a bad world. Bad world. <laughs> but even in his parting, where he he's gotten them there, and he's like, "Cool, I'm leaving." Like I'm turning around now, I'm getting straight on the first trade uh, vessel up the river. I've got to go back mm. to Faldara. My mission isn't over. I've got to go and talk to the king and to Lord Agilmar and tell them what happened and what ra- r- pipes down. It's like what ran the Dragon Reborn is. In that sort of greeting, it's also like if you need, and this was to Varen, if you need anything, like yeah. you can send word for me, then I will be there. Like he doesn't go like, Whew, I'm rid of the witches. Yeah. So that it's just his behavior on this whole trip has been really bizarre. Why is he hiding the fact that he's a sniffer? I don't think he is hiding that because Varen already knows. Everybody knows. Uh, mm. Maybe the girls don't know. But maybe he's hiding it from them. But why? I don't get it. Because they talk about, Egwene talks about his hunches. Yes. He talks about his lies and says, I saw some tracks. He wasn't. He smelt them. And even when he catches himself saying, I smelt, and holds himself back and changes what he's going to say. So maybe he's hiding his ability from the girls and not from Mm. Varen. Because Varen 100% knows. Yes. You reminded me of that now that I'm even more confused. That That didn't help me. Well, your original theory of him sort of, you know, being wary of Varen could be because of stuff that she's had to do as a Black Lodge member. Here's the line. I smell. He cut himself short and blinked as if in surprise, eyes darting from one woman to another. Just a feeling, he said finally. Uh, A hunch. So he's terrified that they will find out, but I don't get it. Anyway. So, I mean, the girls are always just looking at Euron thinking he's just a dude with (laughs) a sword. He's not even a Shinaran warrior. He's just a Shinaran. He's a special bloke, that guy. I'm so happy he didn't die or anything. When he says to Varen or to the group that if you guys ever need me, mm. I will come from Sheena. Just send word to Faldara and I will mm. come. He seems embarrassed that he said it, mm. which is reminiscent of, you know, the behavior of people around Tavarin. Yes. You know, saying things they didn't intend on saying, mm. yep. making decisions they didn't intend on making, just further strengthening the Egwene and Nynaeve are also Tavarin yes. theory. That does. That could be. Because you read about the effects of Taverin on the world in these chapters. You yeah. know, they're talking about, you know, Rand's effect on the people around them. And they mention Arthur, Arthur, Arthur Hawking and like how people would say things around him that they didn't, that they didn't intend on saying. And here, uh, Huron seems to say that thing and then he feels embarrassed that he said it and then he leaves. Yeah, this, the, the, these chapters had a lot of emphasis on Taverin in, in general. I mean, there's, there's the, the understanding like... Uh, Burain's telling was Baron that I mean she doesn't even know what his ability is as a Tavarian because there's never been someone as strong in it as he is. I mean the last person was uh, Louis Theron, 
and they haven't even touched on the fact that you know like Matt is also Teferin. Mm. Like, there's, there's like a whole other pool of random encounters coming from that side. When Perrin is in her room in that little town in, in Jara, was it? She mm. actually says, maybe I haven't been paying enough attention to the other two Teferin that I found. Mm. So she does, she does touch on yeah. it a bit. Like, yeah, yeah, you guys are having a hard time. I'm sorry, I've been so focused on Rand. Well, now yeah. that he's gone, she's got time for the others. Well, she's got no time for Matt. He's being carted on the back of a horse. Oh, he'll be back. Oh, sh- Moraine will have time for Matt later when he comes and saves her ass. <laughs> yeah, yes. absolutely. Varen does a, a bit of fancy Aes Sedai footwork when talking to the guardsman. Mm-hmm. When he says, we've heard rumor of, uh, you know, like what's happened in Falme in Toman Head or Falme in Tarabon. And, uh, you know, we heard it was burned to the ground or something like that. There was a war, a big battle. <laughs> and Varen yeah. says... Falm um, still stands. She says, rumors are seldom true. I can tell you that Falme still stands. It isn't even in Tarabon, guardsman. Listen less to rumor and more to the Amaran seat. Mm. Yo, so everything she I says is true, that. and she even uses that opportunity to bring him into line <laughs> to listen to the Amaran seat. <laughs> oh, Varen is a mysterious puzzle. Yeah, she continues to be an enigma. You guys got anything else there? When um, when they're riding across the bridge, Egwene feels like she's coming home. Yes. Like she has this real powerful affinity with uh or to the tower she's she's in deep she's invested right she mm. wants to be Aes Sedai um and that that um belief in what the tower stands for is what carries her through the story all the way to the end yeah she remains loyal to the tower and dedicates her life to it till the till the very end the very uh, end yeah uh, regardless of which tower, if it's in Saladar or if it's back on, on, on the island, it doesn't matter. She does that whole thing when she reunites the towers where she makes the, the rebel Aes Sedai apologize for defying the law of the tower. Yeah. The Aes Sedai that raised her to Amalyn. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah, well, good thing she did. Because then the Sean Chan pop in. Hey, we don't like your tower. <laughs> what up? <laughs> and then she goes what <laughs> eat this and there's the chapter summarized <laughs> bank that one for later <laughs> um i wanted to quickly touch on theodrin and Faulain. um mm. Faulain, i think is someone that you are you read about a fair bit in fact she goes to saladar and i think Egwene actually raises her to Aes Sedai. there's um there's a lot of her like spying on behalf of Egwene on you know other sitters in Saladar. It's she's a, a recurring character for sure, but she's always written in such a way that you definitely dislike her. Mm. And did Egwene say in this chapter that she'll definitely choose red? Mm. Yes, because she doesn't. Oh, she red is blue. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah. Because despite her like her acerbic nature, she is um, very much invested in a sense of justice, and she. At the end of the day, she does the right thing. And then Theodrin, who we said is a wilder, is someone that actually works with Nynaeve to break her own block. Mm-hmm. I think also in Saladar. Maybe this is, again, playing on that Tavirin power of the girls. Like, if she was perceived to be red and thought that she would go in that direction, maybe their presence changed something in her that yeah. makes her Things make changed. a different decision. Maybe. And then lastly, I, I thought it was kind of cute that Elaine and Egwene, or Egwene, hold hands 
as they walk mm. into the tower to to meet their fate. Mm. And I couldn't help but think back to like how Egwene has now changed her opinion of Min, uh, it seems like, based on their last interaction. <laughs> Elaine is going in the same direction, Egwene, so <laughs> hold hands while you can. Yes. <laughs> she's also coming she's also coming for your man. <laughs> well, it's not her man anymore. She told him off. No. She sure chose isn't. the tower. She chose the the island. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys remember to choose a favorite moment? Oh man, this was Slim Picking's favorite moments. Uh, so is that a no? No, I did. No, I did. <laughs> did you pick you it during first. the recording of this episode? <laughs> no, no. I, I read and I, I read this, this, and it doesn't seem like I'm getting away from reading the books twice over and trying to do this, but it seems to be what's happening. But it was uh, initially in the first read a bit of slim picking, but through the second bit of going these six chapters up, I found something that connected with me. Okay, and that is? Uh, Well, am I going first? Uh, Simeon Mm. and his Mm. very quick and rapid character development and his very (laughs) His little mini arc. uh, His little mini arc and clever wit around him to know about the Aes Sedai, already know that Perrin is this guy that the White Lokes had spoken about. He put one and one together very quickly. Just this, uh, not everyone out there is country bumpkins. Yeah, I also really enjoyed, like I said, just in the span of that one chapter, he basically goes from just... Zero to hero. He is another lackey in a pub uh, to actually showing some real um, compassion Mm. and gratitude. Yes, understanding, just... uh... Not some judgmental white cloak or some judgmental person that wants to draw a dragon fang on every fucking door frame. It's, yeah, uh, totally. I like old Simeon. I'm glad he found peace mm. in his brother's freedom. Yes. All right, Jody, putting you on the spot. <laughs> I do not have a favorite moment. I have a couple of standouts. Like you say, it was really slim pickings. Balefire, um, dark out, but you didn't think they were dark out, so... You just thought it was a dog that's being struck by lightning. <laughs> I just thought that's the only thing he's learnt. Like, he doesn't know anything except Balefire. He just starts at the top. But that was one of the standout moments for me. That Bale, uh, Rand, like, you know, saying, I'm not easy meat anymore and Balefire. Mm. Um, and also just something about Perrin as well, standing up to Moraine and then softening that little, like, mini arc kind of a thing as well. Mm. Where he, you know, it's like, okay, you... you what Vili said as well, that uh, that's also what I noticed, because eventually we'll be talking about this the whole time. Why doesn't Moraine tell them more? And it's right. Yeah. What she says in that part is like, I have a lifetime of knowledge. Like any one of the hundred things I know could happen. And when it happens, like, yeah. oh, yeah, I knew that amongst one of the many others that I knew. So yeah. in hindsight, it does know it does seem like she knows everything and she's not telling them, but. She can't, you know, dump all of her knowledge on them no. in advance. No. And so all three of us have young kids. And you, especially with your boys, Jody, and me with my two boys, like not so much Jude, but very much some more Jamie, is <laughs> you can see when the shit's going to go down. And yeah. you, you're kind of like trying to coax them away from that thing that they are busy messing with, that it's not uh-huh. going to bode well for you. So, but I mean, you can't tell them everything. So much. They're just not going to listen. Yeah. It's like yeah. she could have told so, them, like, this is a potential thing to happen, and they would still go on and fuck it up like they usually do these two river boys <laughs> women they do fuck up a lot yeah they do but the, the whole book is them escaping their own fucking disasters that they cause 
Um, Joe, you actually touched on my favorite moment, which was Perrin standing up to Moran. Oh, yeah. I I really like how, I mean, especially for Perrin, uh, who is so, like, you know, slow to act and hmm. um, considered and everything that he does, he still felt the need and the necessity to push Moran um, hmm. because of his own frustration. So even though it was out of character for him, I liked the fact that he showed um, that he can also get fired up and that he, I mean, he's never scared of anything in the series. Like, I, he's not the guy that is like, Rand is constantly scared of going crazy. I guess Perrin's got his, his inner um, battle with his, his wolfishness, but he never comes across as being um, out of control. You know, mm. he's always calm. Um, and here he's sort of, they describe like how he, he towers over Moraine as well. But she just meets his stare like for like because I mean obviously she's Isodine, she's super powerful. But I mean that that image of Perrin like, you know, quote unquote throwing his weight around yeah. and then, you know, standing up to her. I was like, Yeah, go Perrin. Do. Because I'm also frustrated with mm. Moraine. There was that scene, she's not meeting his stare, he's meeting hers. It's like it, one of the yes, lines is like yes. he just manages to not look down before yeah. she breaks away. Like he was about to crack under her pressure, but he, yes. he like stands up to her. Yeah. But it's not complete. I think until like the other chapters later on where he comes and asks her for help. Like he's not yeah. just being a stubborn asshole. Um, he's generally worried about his friend and about himself. And yes. so he does soften up a bit at the end there and they, they, they kind of yeah. go fishing together. and Everything's better. I feel like some of these mini arcs were written to be covered in the number of chapters that we cover. <laughs> We've split up these books perfectly. <laughs> Almost by design. So if any of our listeners have favorite moments of their own from either the stretch of chapters or anywhere in the story, or you have any comments or corrections or theories or anything you want to float by us or anything you want us to read in the show, uh, do get in touch with us. All of our social media links are in the show description. But the easiest way, obviously, just get, get a hold of us on Twitter. You can tweet us at Blood and Ash Pod. Next time, we'll cover chapters 12 through 17. That is the Amelin seat through to the Red Sister. Ooh. Ooh. Could that Elida? be Leandrin? Hmm? Elida, oh. Leandrin. Who could it be? Um, <laughs> Tune in next time to find out as we find out with you. <laughs> Do you still tune um, to podcasts? Sure. Why not? Yeah, okay. So I was just wondering about that like, <laughs> old radio. Tune in, tune that dial. Bloop, 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 bloop. Yeah, I'm finding it really hard not to say tune in next week. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> there will be no tuning, and also next week there will be no episode. Um but like we did last time, we would encourage you to get your friends to tweet us, read the books, listen to the podcast, get in, get in there, become part of the conversation. This Wheel of Time community that we have sort of been exposed to since starting the podcast is alive and kicking and it is thriving and it is uh, a lot of fun to be a part of. Um, so I would invite everyone to, to spread out and reach out. And with that, I think that we are done. So I will say goodbye, gentlemen, and I will see you next time. Cheers, everyone. Good evening. Good evening.